Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am, you know, I'm just happy to be here. Happy to be any place. I'm happy to be seen, heard, happy to be joined by you. And I hope we won't disappoint you today. And I suspect we probably won't because we never do. By we, I mean Michael Moynihan, Vice News, and our very good friend, Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine. I I did that backwards this time just to throw a curveball at you gentlemen. Because you're doing it in the order of people who disappoint you. Yes. And uh, And I I started with myself. (laughs) I started with myself. I just want to be honest about that. No, you sound like my father. (laughs) (laughs) You know how much you disappoint me? I'm like, I know. Yeah, let's not talk about this. Yeah, I planted the seed. That was my mistake. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was was good to see you, gentlemen. It's good to see you too. Have you moved yet? Are you like down the street? Do we not know that you're like living in the Bronx or something? No, I haven't moved yet. Go down Bronx, and you know, I don't even want to talk about it today. Just why is it hard? I mean, it's always hard. All of the things are hard. Nothing is not hard in the age of Omicron. That is the reality. Wow. All of yeah, the yeah. pronunciation. So, Omicron. Omicron. Yeah, I Omicron. think that because of Omicron, we need rent control in New York just to get Camille <laughs> back to the city. So, you know, just expand the supply of housing and get Camille back. Yeah. What I want so, is viral yeah. equity. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets it right now. Let's just wow. get this over with. There are so many jokes with viral equity. Everyone gets it right now. That's I've, I said that one time at Plato's retreat. Yeah, that's, a, that's a deep cut from the 70s. Um, well, there's a picture of uh, Gerald Ford behind our guest tonight. Yes. Yes. Retreat. We, do, we yeah. do have a guest. We should, <laughs> probably, we should probably get to that quickly because he's a busy man with many things. Oh, like no, he's not. I mean, it's, it's shocking that he was able to join us this evening to, to yeah. share with us, but I'm glad that he did. It, and I think he's here for a second official no. tour, or is this third? Is a third official tour. I, I mean, in terms of the the, the wide release podcast, because he's been on the, the second wide release, and he's uh, participating in a couple of. Uh, Zoom in, informal. I think that's right. Things, yeah. That went on Patreon, and that's because he's not just a United States congressman from Michigan's third district, which is odd because there are no other districts. It's the only one that anyone cares about. Yeah, the only so one that matters. Yeah. Um, congressman Peter Myers here on the Fifth yeah. Column Podcast. Welcome Myers. back again, Congressman. Thank Man, you. Man, I thought we were having Charlie Randall. <laughs> he's, he's, he's lounging right now. He's lounging. I doubted the. I am <laughs> delighted to see you. Bermuda. Delighted to see you again. Delighted to have you joining us again. And I want to let you know that we we did get you here under false pretenses. I I suggested that there were other things I wanted to talk to you about. Only thing I want to know about is the UFOs. Talk no, to us no. about the UFOs. Talk to us no. about the UFO report. I have no Tell update. I have no update. You have no you've update. seen the unclassified. I have no. I, well, yes, I've seen the unclassified. You've all probably had the opportunity to yes, see the unclassified. Yes. Yeah. Have you the seen the classified? classified? Yeah. Yeah. No. You talk to anyone who's seen the classified one. Yeah. I mean, I probably what have been not about <laughs> document, but I, I've requested it and uh, they're, they're stonewalling. I guess there's something out there. Wow. Has Mark Meadows seen it? It's out there. Yeah. <laughs> Let's check his text messages. Well, there was a release today at the Biden administration. Uh, 
release some JFK documents. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right. And uh, we found out that uh, Peter's grandfather was uh, in on the conspiracy. He was friends with Ted Cruz's dad. So, I mean, I think it all just kind of goes <laughs> yeah, back to the other murderer. Can, can I say that? Or is that we're not in England? That's not liable, is it? That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, considering the president's before, I suppose we can say it. Yeah. Well, thanks for that coming. Warren Commission. Yeah. 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 I Total want to, whitewash. No, it wasn't actually. I do want to point out that if you hear the sound of clinking ice, um, mm. that's not any of the co-hosts of the podcast. No, no. It not, is. I, I thought there was expectation. America's drunkest congressman, <laughs> Peter Meyer. <laughs> he slurs his way onto the floor and votes to impeach. Yeah. And then apologized because he was too drunk to remember. Peter Meyer, America's congressman. I did. I received some criticism um, from folks because I mentioned having some whiskey in my office on the night of January 6th and someone, this is at like midnight, right? Yeah. And, I had, and, and somebody wrote in, they're like, I'm very disappointed you were drinking on the job. It's like, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was, it was wow. You're disappointed about the people climbing through the window <laughs> dressed as fucking Vikings? No? I mean, they, they right. kind of had a point, right? Character matters. Yeah. <laughs> but in the hierarchy of disappointments on that day, I think drinking is probably pretty low. He's got a lot of Dutch reforms yeah. in, his, uh, in his district. I, he, I respect that. Are you, are you a Dutch reform? You have one of those Dutch reform like names. I definitely have one of those Dutch reform names, but my grandfather, my great grandfather came over from the Netherlands. He was, um, I think the joke is that most people come to the U.S. because their home countries were, you know, not tolerant and they sought freedom. Um, the, the Dutch came to West Michigan and Iowa and a few other places because the Netherlands was too liberal and they wanted a more conservative place. But that was not my great grandfather. He was a raging yeah. anarchist. Yeah. I want to come oppress people. Where do you go? Michigan? <laughs> like the grocery store and oppressing people. Wait, it, great is that a Dutch was... accent? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. But uh, Peter, that's what they used to sound like. That's <laughs> changed yes. since. Yeah. Raging anarchist? Is this. Mm -hmm. An anarchist, wow. great-grandfather age time, you're like assassinating people. Yes. Is there something you want to confess to? It was not a bomb thrower, just a pamphlet subscriber, but um, mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a trying time no. to be an anarchist. I mean, you know, it's like... Your grandfather didn't kill Kennedy. Your great-grandfather killed McKinley. That's what we didn't <laughs> understand about this whole thing. The timeline doesn't work out from like a 1910 immigration. That's what they all say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, man or not. Yeah. Well, uh, the, I was saying to Matt uh, before he started, I asked if, uh, if he had read... Uh, Tim Alberta's uh, is it fawning? Matt, no, does it it's qualify as fawning? No, it's, I, it's I, not. I, actually, not. I, 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 we'll want to talk a little bit about it. Uh, Peace in Atlantic. In uh, Atlantic, yeah, yeah. Sort of opposing. Uh, let's just talk about him like he's not here. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, opposing beardy, beardy McDrunk <laughs> over there in the corner of the screen. Um, yeah. like, I that was Prince Harry. Like, Sorry. here's the problem with the Republican Party because even principled people, after they do the principled thing, look around and, and go, oh, shit. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, that's maybe that's not going to work in the modern Republican Party. And then they get kind of quiet. Maybe that's my gloss on it. Is that the correct gloss, Peter? Is that what you did? You read it? I, I did. I did. Yeah, I, read, yeah. I read. I read. I read the uh, six thousand or so word article. Um, no, it, it, about, yeah, about I spent a lot of time with yeah. Tim and <laughs> yeah. Tim, yeah. Tim, who's a very good reporter. And yes, and, uh, and Peter's apparently a huge narcissist. <laughs> six thousand <laughs> words on himself. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it, it, you know, I, um, 
obviously you don't have editorial control about what somebody else writes about you. But, uh, you know, I think he had an overall honest perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I will say that I think um, journalists are, are strongly biased towards if it's not public and if it's not happening, if, if it's not public, it's not happening. Right. If it's not reportable um, or if it's something that isn't disclosable, um, you know, it, it is kind of uh, non-incorporable. So I, I, I think he, he kind of got the nader a little bit. I would say. So uh, how would you correct it? You seem to have, you know, mixed feelings about it. If you were to say, okay, I read this piece. Um, yeah. Now I talked to the congressman. What would you say that uh, he got wrong or you would like to sharpen the point or clarify? No, I wouldn't say that he got wrong. I just think the the idea that if you're not combative on Twitter, you know, you're not fighting. Uh, I guess that there are other ways um, and and I think my my the the dawning realization to me over the past eleven months was, uh, I mean, if, if you think of where Marjorie Taylor Greene was in January and and where her standing was versus where it is now, it's night and day. And maybe this isn't seen on the outside, but she was went from somebody who was dismissed, you know, to somebody who, you know, feels very empowered and and can move and change things, and that. Um, is not the greatest reflection on the Republican Party in 2021. But, you know, I think the, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to, to go into kind of greater detail there, but I, I would say in general, um, it's just a not great time all around. And yet, you know, it's, you know, I don't, don't know the right analogy, but, you know, it's like if you if you bought a house and you're like, oh, the paint's fading. You're like, all right, right, great. We can go put a new coat of paint on. And then you kind of like get in. You're like, oh, we got like a termite infestation. Oh, that's not going to be great. And then, oh, you got black mold, too. Like like the things just compound. And it's not a it's not unsalvageable, uh, but the difficulty increases exponentially, <laughs> I would say. So that that I think is is a, a correct assessment of the uh, naivete. And I feel I feel a little bit like we may have jumped into the deep end of the pool here. I suspect there's at least someone listening who may not have sufficient context. And the reality here, Congressman, is that you are someone who has attracted the ire of your party and also the man who is still, in many respects, the standard bearer for the Republican Party, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. And in recent weeks, you find yourself facing, well, you were already facing some folks who want to take your job, who also happen to be Republicans. So they're going to be running against you in the primary, one of whom has been endorsed by the former president of the United States, who's generally not a fan of yours. And he's not a fan because you voted in favor of impeachment shortly he after holds that January against me for some reason. I don't, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny right. how that works. Um, <laughs> so this is, this has become a, a bit of an issue for you. Um, and one imagines that you are somewhat unpopular amongst some Republicans in the establishment. But I, I mean, I wonder, I mean, how much trouble is this causing for you back home? Are you worried about these challengers? Do you think that there is room in the GOP for it to still retain the the title of the the big tent party it used to be the party where you could have differences of perspective on important issues but these days not so clear if that's still the case so all valid points and questions uh you know i think talking about the the big tent i mean we had a gathering down in um 
I think it was in Tampa, uh, the and a National Republican Congressional Committee gathering, and you know there's a big fundraising dinner. There was a very important guest who who's currently a resident of the state of Florida, and the message was unity. It was unity. We all need to come together. We need to come together, but also get these rhinos out of the party, right? So there's a little bit of a, a, a tension and then a degree to which it's at odds. Um, I mean, going back to the Alberta piece, I mean, one of the reasons why I don't start out every town hall meeting saying, just for the record, um, you know, January 6th was an Antifa and BLM. And if you think that, you know, you're an idiot or, you know, I don't kind of come out on that. Uh, I don't retreat from any questions. I, I, I tackle that head on. But the... The challenge is that there are folks who basically said, hey, OK, like, I, I don't agree with that. I didn't like that vote. Um, but in the realm of things that I care about today that are impacting my everyday life, it, it just doesn't register. Now, that mm. doesn't mean I don't think what happened on January 6th and just the overarching political violence, like the tendency to to play to the political violence and to kind of whip that up. Um, I, I think that's incredibly dangerous. And I think that. January 6th is the, you know, should have been a, a warning sign. It should have been a, this is a, a taste of what could come if we keep going down this path. Instead, it becomes something that you can justify and that you can reconcile, that you can ignore, that you can spin, that you can blame cast. Uh, none of which is healthy in any way, shape or form. But that just doesn't scan off Twitter. It doesn't scan off cable news. And, and so that's, I think, the tension. And I, it, I think many members of Congress or, or those who, you know, purport to take their job seriously, you know, you, there's a tension between the things you look at and say, this is a really massive deal. Cybersecurity, right? You know, the, China invades Taiwan. We send the Seventh Fleet to, to intimidate them. And all of a sudden, it's the summertime and the power goes out in Phoenix and people are baking to death in their house. And the Chinese say, well, we can turn the power back on. You know, if you turn that fleet around, right, that to me is a really huge issue. But mm. if you were to pull the public, cybersecurity wouldn't even register in the top 50 issues. Right. So there's always going to be a little bit of an internal concern versus external. And, and that's really where I view the issue of political violence is it's become something that we should be treating as an internal concern. But you're not going to go and run a campaign on political violence bad. But even even at town halls, I mean, I imagine they're over-indexing for people who care about this stuff and people who are motivated to come out to a town hall. So, I mean, I see behind you that you have Richard Hofstetter's uh, anti-intellectual uh, intellectualism in American life. By the way, these shelves came on Amazon like yeah. a few hours ago, and I just with yeah, I just made them. No, I've, I've always just had this map of the city of Grand Rapids. Yeah, I'm trying to with a picture of Gerald Ford. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wherever it's landing, they just put a picture <laughs> of some political figure from that state. Um, but if like, how do you actually respond to that? Because I imagine that's going to come up a lot. And your predecessor, um, you know, had, had some pretty interesting, uh, Justin had some pretty interesting town halls. When somebody comes to you and says something like, it's Antifa, it was, you know, any of these conspiracy theories, even if it's about the election, I mean, you obviously have to tread a pretty thin line here because, you know, you're their representative and you're trying to not totally dismiss them, but you're trying to also say that they're wrong. I mean, how does well, one... I mean, I said that's not the truth. That wasn't You just say that that's not the truth. Oh, yeah. I mean... If they think that, and I mean, I, I had a, I had an early, and to be honest, we haven't had in-person Zooms right now. Michigan is not good on COVID and the um, holding in per large in-person events, both questionable in terms of uh, 
uh, let me just say a Republican candidate, you're not exactly going to get the most highly vaccinated and like mass compliant individuals if they're packing into an auditorium. Wow. So throwing them on the bus. No, I, I'm just saying that <laughs> I, I, I feel a little bit of responsibility to not, you know, do things that may inadvertently endanger constituents. Right? That should be the bare minimum expectation of a, a member. Um, and so a lot of it has been virtual or it's been gatherings that other folks have done. And in, in Republican circle, and I was just at an event, um, a holiday party for a local Republican party a couple days ago on Monday. And it, you know, I, you know, some people come up to me and they, they have the, they see things on social media and then they ask questions about that, you know? So it's a lot more, this is what I'm seeing, but you know, you were there or, you know, I'm, I'm hearing this and, and, and I take those opportunities to clarify, but I, I, there was one Zoom very early on. Um, I think it was around uh, some uh, party censure for uh, of me. And it was a, a woman saying, well, I have a friend who's uh, in the Washington, D.C. police. And they said there were only six Capitol Police officers on duty. They let them in. It was peaceful. I was like, no, no, there were actually like 1,200. No, they said there were only six. I'm like, no, no, there were 1,200. It, it, it became not a shouting match, but it was like, I, I, I was there, yeah. you know, like you're, you're relying on like, but this individual is trying to tell me that I was wrong. And, 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 and there are things that I've been wrong about and there's plenty of things that I could be wrong about. Um, you know, regarding January 6th or just, you know, in general in life you've been wrong about. Well, January 6th, um, Brian Sicknick beaten to death with a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Yeah. There were Capitol Police who were beaten, including those who were beaten with fire extinguishers, and he collapsed and died. Um, you know, those two things did not bear out in the medical examiner's report. Doesn't change the fact that over 150, um, you know, Metropolitan and Capitol Police officers were, were, you know, injured that day. That it was a very violent incident. But I was wrong about that. That was the information that was being validated at the time and what Capitol Police were saying. Uh, but I'm not wrong about the fact that there were several hundred, 1,200 in that range Capitol Police officers on duty on January 6th. I mean, that should not be in the realm of debatable statistics. And so that's, I think, where, you know, I, I do feel a duty to correct and in a respectful way, not um, how do you believe that? But no, no, this, this is what the reality was. This is and, what occurred. And just to pull a Camille with extra context, um, that was what, your third day? In office, <laughs> January sixth, uh, and and when you've been on the show previously, we've uh, talked about that both uh, Patreon episodes and uh, and the regular episode. Uh, so so folks yeah. should really subscribe to the Patreon. I mean, yeah, I, sure. I highly recommend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the, very good. The Never Fly Coach level I hear is it's, really it's the yeah. best level. Yeah, it yeah. is the best level. <laughs> we will send you messages and harass and, you. And fifty and fifty dollars a month is just a guideline. I mean, you can do more. <laughs> you can do more. You can do more, and you should yeah. do more. Yeah, come on. I'm just, just a suggestion. I mean, I think it's obvious. It speaks for itself. But come exactly. on. It's yeah. fucking inflation, man. I'm raising all the prices by 7%. Dynamics. <laughs> so we're recording this on December 15th, I think. Uh, and this has been a week with a lot of January 6th stuff going on. Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. Who I think yeah. is still technically a member of the Republican Party. I think so. they're trying really Mar hard. Marjorie, Marjorie wants to kick her out, but yes, that's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of news this week about Mark Meadows, yeah. text messages, bullet points, mm -hmm. Fox News people. What have you learned from this process? And I will confess up front, 
that I haven't been paying journalistically close attention to this at all um, and feel badly about that. But since you're here, we can ask you about it. Like, what did you learn that you didn't know as part of this process? And has the learning made the existence of that process uh, kind of uh, sort of justify it a little bit? And, mm. Well, I, you said you haven't been paying attention, but I suspect you do know that not only were his text messages read, there, there was a vote to hold him in contempt, yes. which that's a thing. We've done that now. Yeah. And this is yeah. number two, I believe, in number terms two. of yeah. people who have been and, there yeah. have been a contempt vote. The other was uh, Steve Bannon. And, and that was also about his sartorial yes. problem. Yeah. <laughs> He's wearing four shirts that day. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I've learned anything. I mean, I'm sure there have been things coming out of the January 6th committee that reiterated what I expected or, it, or frankly, showed to the broader public what was kind of known internally. But a lot of stuff kind of got lost at the time. I mean, the... Um, there was a, there was an anecdote that I think Jamie or Butler had, had mentioned about, um, leader McCarthy in a phone call with, with Donald Trump that, you know, while the Capitol is being broken into basically saying you need to kind of shut this down. And, you know, Trump said, well, those aren't my people. And McCarthy was like, yeah, they are your people. And, and Trump retorts back, you know, well, I guess they just care more about the election than you do. And, you know, thing that suit, you know, that. That was put, she had mentioned that in like a newspaper interview 10 days later, nobody saw it. And then somebody dug it up right going into the impeachment vote or the impeachment trial in the Senate. And all of a sudden it was like banner news on CNN. So, the, I mean, the, the, this was one of the reasons why I voted in favor of the bipartisan independent commission that could be a bit more, you know, removed, a bit more measured, a bit more, um, you know, hopefully authoritative in the eyes of the public and, and why I, you know, am, Reserve skepticism of the January 6th committee, mm -hmm. but, you know, view all the actions that they do on on whatever the merits may be of that individual case. I, I voted to hold Steve Bannon in contempt because he just told Congress to pound sand uh, and he had no plausible executive privilege for what he was doing on January 6th. And you can't, you know, when you're not in the employ of the president and you're doing things that have no official bearing, like campaigns, politics, electioneering. Uh, you, you can't even begin to claim that. Um, I mean, there's it, a political result of that, too, because he had on today, right? The guy who's uh, running against you in the primary. So you, you hold Steve Bannon in contempt and he has, I mean, why otherwise would he pay attention to the race in Michigan 3? I guess, you know, it's the anti-Trump people who want to get out. But still, he has that guy on today, right, to, to denounce you. It may, may have been a few days ago. But there's, there's what, like, you know, it was recently. Yeah. yeah. I, so I don't subscribe to the, the war room pandemic podcast. Yes, you <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge poster. Steve Bob, you didn't take it down. Yeah. No, I got the little shirt memorial with all the. <laughs> um, no. And, and that was to be expected. Right. I mean, I mean, Bannon is the one who was leading the charge against the, the impeachers who were running for reelection. So there were 10 of us and there was eight running for reelection. Yeah. Um, and Bannon's kind of running point on that. I mean, they, they were making a lot of money. They got to keep making a lot of money. There's a lot of juice to squeeze the low dollar base. You can make boatloads. I mean, Sidney Powell got just, was it like $14 million she raised? On yeah. The steel like stuff? yeah. Wow. Insane. Do you think that's what's motivating them? I mean, it's hard. It's the thing that's always hard to separate. Like, do these people believe this stuff? Mm -hmm. I mean, I spent six hours with Steve Bannon about 
two weeks before the election. And he told me during that interview, like Donald Trump will not concede. doesn't matter what he's not going to concede. And I was like, well, you told us and we aired that too. And nobody noticed, but mm-hmm. uh, it seemed like a, a preconceived kind of uh, idea. Like we will make sure that we don't concede no matter what, but I got the impression it's hard to tell if he buys this stuff or if it's just a kind of, you know, for, to use the wildly overused word, if it's just a grift, you know? Uh, in, in finding the line, I mean, you can be grifting and believe it. I mean, I, I yeah, had a yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Yeah, I had a talk or like a radio um, talk radio guy who was I was talking, you know, talk about the election, and he's like, "Well, Donald Trump says this." I'm like, "Well, that no, that that's a lie," and he's like, "Well, is it a lie if he believes it?" Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> it's actually a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not not a lie if he believes it. Actually, yeah. it's mistaken. Uh, but yeah. but of course, you know, we we don't know what people's motives are, but I am curious. You mentioned that you had some reservations about the January 6th committee, um, given the explicitly partisan nature of it. There's two Republicans, Liz Cheney being one of them, um, who are on the committee. I, I find myself as an outsider watching this. I see Steve Bannon getting subpoenaed. And of course, Congress has the power to issue these subpoenas. But What's likely to happen when he shows up? One, you could decide that you're just going to plead the fifth and you won't answer any questions, whatever. But to be brought in, to be publicly badgered or even behind closed doors badgered so that this can be later released to the public. I mean, the reality is that this process is, in some respects, openly political. The organizing document of this committee talks about January 6th as a domestic terror attack. That is freighted. That's not disputes over whether or not we call this a rabble, a riot, or an insurrection. It's a domestic terror attack. And that puts a very particular kind of gloss on the events of the 6th. And we've talked about some of the members of the public who have completely ridiculous conspiracy theory-laden views about what happened on that day. But the objection that most card-carrying Republicans would raise about the proceedings on the Hill and about these prosecutions now, potentially, of people who are allies of the president is that this entire process has more to do with politics and gaining political advantage than it does the material issue that you spoke to just a moment ago of a rising tide of political violence, which I think you would agree is not something that began on January 6th. Um, One hopes that it ended on that particular day. But we've seen many, many, many instances of political violence, an uncomfortable number of them over the course of the past four years. Um, And even some of the kind of skepticism about our electoral system, that's been bipartisan, that's happened Mm -hmm. for a while now. It seems to me that we're not really getting at that sort of stuff. And even the Meadows revelations, like the text messages that I've seen read, those seem to suggest to me, you know, uh, well, actually, let's come back to that later. I want to know what you think about that stuff in particular, but, but the political nature of this inquiry and whether or not we're actually getting closer to the truth, I think is a a meaningful place for us to have some discussion. I'm, I'm desperate to know how you feel about that. Well, you know, I think you're right. I mean, the exposure is inherently political. But the cover-up has also been inherently political, right? So I, and this is the the easiest thing to do in Congress is to just say, well, where's every where's everyone in my party, and then how do I find the shortest path to get to where they are? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I mentioned I voted to hold Steve Bannon in contempt. I didn't vote 
yesterday, yes, yesterday, I didn't vote to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he did kind of comply. He asserted, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he asserted absolute testimonial immunity as a former executive branch official. Um, There were some court cases on whether or not Trump or sorry, whether or not Biden can revoke the prior um, executive privilege of, you know, Essentially, you know, Biden has said, uh, I'm not asserting or the White House is not asserting executive privilege over the scope of the January 6th uh, select committee. And can he do that? It's a first. You know, I don't know um, it, if, if he is succeeded by a Republican president. It probably won't bode well to him if that standard is upheld. But, you know, in, in that context, I mean, Meadows was wrong on some of those facts. And so, you know, it, it was kind of a miserable decision to say, well, I could probably hold you in contempt because you asserted absolute testimonial immunity and it's really only limited and you should have appeared and, you know, cited executive privilege, but instead you wrote a letter citing executive privilege after releasing several thousand pages worth of documents, which is why we actually know some of these things. Mm-hmm. Ah, I, yeah. I mean, so the, the easy thing to say was, would be, I hate Mark Meadows. January 6th was bad. Hold him in contempt or this is a witch hunt, you know, I'm going to vote no. And anyone who tries to find a standard that can be consistently applied across administrations ends up in the position I am reading hundreds of pages of lawsuits and, and court document precedents and, um, and uh, judicial opinions to, to try to find an articulable standard that can be consistently applied. Uh, you know, I think the, I meant the reservations I have with the committee are that, you know, just, just in the same way that Nancy Pelosi with the impeachment articles, there were Republicans who reached out trying to draft. I was not one of them. It was my third or at that point, like between the third and 10th day, um, tried to draft a more bipartisan, you know, articles of impeachment focusing on dereliction of duty mm-hmm. and, and in violation of the oath of office. Uh, and she spurned that. Right. I mean, her goal was to get a, have as few Republicans as possible vote for impeachment so that they could run against them in 2022 for not having impeached Trump. And and she didn't care. And frankly, I think wanted the impeachment to fail in the Senate because what holds the Democratic Party together right now if Donald Trump can't run for office and is sidelined and marginalized? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that that to me is what is so dispiriting is just the cynicism all around when, um, to the earlier point, I mean, that political violence and that belief in delegitimation delegitimizing our institutions. And if I can gain a little bit, it's a zero sum world. And I'm never even giving a moment's thought to the fact that what I'm doing in the majority may really come back to bite me in the minority. And and that's the way that we should be looking. That's the beautiful thing about our system is it isn't when you're out of party, out of power, you know, you are, are banished to the wastelands. It's, you know, the party in power realizing we're going to be out of power. So we should probably have a little bit of a a uh, you know, more prudent approach to how we wield it when we have it. And instead, I mean, you have Elizabeth Warren today talking about packing the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I have Democratic colleagues who talk about abolishing the Senate. Um, you know, those to me are just they haven't manifested themselves in the in the physical violence that we saw on January 6th. But I firmly believe that potential is there. Wait, did I, I miss something? There are people, uh, colleagues are talking about abolishing the Senate. I must have missed this. Oh, because it's a. I'm not, I really hope I didn't miss that. Anti democratic. <laughs> yeah, it's anti democratic. Uh, we, you know, we're. Those are Supreme know, Court. Any, yeah. Anything that prevents us from being a pure, absolute, 
you know, mob rule democracy is, um, you know, obviously not what the founders intended with our blend of Republican and, and, and Democrat or democracy. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, do you worry about that in some way? I mean, I sent around that piece to you guys today. There's Elizabeth Warren wrote a piece for the Boston Globe saying mm-hmm. that the, the Supreme Court has to have uh, 75 members whole picked by her. I think that was the proposal. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't read the fine print, but that sort of thing. And I read that. Then I got in the car and I listened to a podcast that I also told you guys about uh, that Jane Coaston did on uh, the New York Times uh, with Ross Douthat and Jay Rosen. Mm-hmm. And Jay Rosen was talking about, well, what do you do as a press when, you know, the opposition party is not a real party anymore? It's not a democratic institution. It wants to be authoritarian. And I'm sitting here going. He's a journalist yeah. professor. Right. He's a journalist, but I, let me invoke the bad thing that everybody inv- else invokes is always the, you know, people calling back to Germany. It's always, it's always, you know, when it goes horribly wrong, mm-hmm. it's like, is there a Reichstag element of this with <laughs> January 6th? It's like, we need to do something dramatic because these goons, uh, you know, stormed yeah. the Capitol. So here, let's, let's treat this anti-democratic moment with a bunch of uh, proposals that are themselves anti-democratic. Suspend the writ of habeas corpus, right? I mean, we just need to lock everyone up in Guantanamo Bay. And (laughs) and that the amount of things that I've seen migrate from like fringe right wing conspiracies. Well, next thing they're going to be doing is calling for this. And then I see people on the left actually calling for that. I'm like, oh, my (laughs) God. (laughs) It it is it is playing to all the worst impulses, like just plain and simple and, and frankly, I think it's because we expect far too much of our federal government um, relative to what the federal government can actually deliver. Yeah. Right? Like right. you look at the defund the police movement losing steam. I mean, London Breed today. Was like, <laughs> that's know, not losing steam. That's something else altogether. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was waiting for her to start chanting Blue Lives Matter. Yeah. Like, it is <laughs> they cut her mic. Thing. <laughs> they stole her mic. <laughs> they see, oh, my God. Well, the, yeah, the amount of the amount of news news like camera crews that have had their equipment stolen while reporting on retail theft and crime if she she was a good marriage she'd just say that all happened in oakland because i think the last (laughs) three were and somebody said this to me today by the way true story um i was uh uh, filming something today and a person from vice said that do you know the place where we've had most gear stolen in the past five years san francisco like literally cars broken into people robbed at gun like just crazy not caracas but in san francisco i mean there's the there's the dude who um granted we have more shoots in san francisco than caracas there's a dude uh hollywood or something uh was uh complaining on a twitter about two weeks ago like you know i just had my car broken in and they stole all my uh, like camera gear and stuff and seth rogan um oh yeah uh, america's seth rogan's like you know Whoa, whatever uh why, why, yeah. why, why are you complaining about la like there's like a rationalization that yeah. goes with it and i see this in places like that which is nuts i have a question about the protect our democracy thing because people say this jay rosens of the world say this mm-hmm. um a lot of democrats say this like you know this is my issue we need to protect our democracy um okay, what is the protect our democracy bill or what is – I mean, I actually don't mean that all that sarcastically, but yeah. like what – you presumably care about protecting the democracy. You have a very uh, kind of visceral and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, exacting uh, uh, response to January 6th, and like it was a bad, bad scene, and you voted to impeach a Republican president, and your career has been weird ever since. Um, so what can be done and is being done – um, in protecting our democracy in that way, or are we just sort of like, is this a phrase? 
Yeah. So, yeah, there was the Protect Our Democracy Act quota. And actually, a component of it when it came to um, emergency powers, because that's one I, I have a, a bipartisan bicameral bill. Um, my, my Democratic co-league in the House is the chairman of the House Rules Committee, um, Mr. McGovern. And in the Senate, it is uh, it's actually tripartisan. I think it's Bernie Sanders, Mike Lee, and um, I feel very bad. I'm forgetting the other Democrat on it. But in this, this dealt with the National Security Reform and Accountability Act of 2021, dealt with war powers, it dealt with um, arms export control and emergency powers. Because right now the president can basically declare an emergency and like that's it. I mean, that's actually the incredible thing for, I, I do not argue that the authoritarianism that we saw in the kind of post-election period was incredibly troublesome. Donald Trump had a pandemic, right? If there's one time where an executive can unleash almost unlimited authority, it is during a pandemic. And yet he didn't, which Uh it it probably came to, I don't, in the Alberta piece, I say, I mean, the the danger, Democrats are just terrified of of Donald Trump. I mean, to me, the, the risk is all of the institutional weaknesses that Trump was able to exploit. Somebody else who's more disciplined, more intelligent, has a smarter team around them, mm-hmm. is kind of less greedy and venal and vain and all of those, you know, deadly sins that he probably is afflicted <laughs> with, you know, could really operationalize that in a dark, bad way, you know, far beyond what we've, you know, what we saw in that kind of November to, to kind of January timeframe of the 2020 to 2021. Um, but a long-winded way of saying Part of that Protect Our Democracy Act incorporated something that um, that was in our National Security Reforms and Accountability Act around having Congress be able to check that emergency power. So, OK, you get 30 days, Mr. or Mrs. President, 30 days in order to you can do what you need to do. After that, both chambers need to ratify that they actually agree this is an emergency and not just a power grab. Now, it also had a lot of other components. It incorporated parts of H.R. 1. Um it was it had um, it, it it did start to tackle or at least approach the Electoral Count Act of eighteen eighty seven, which does need to be remedied. But the reality is, you know, there are bills that are crafted in an open bipartisan way where they engage members on the other side. I mean, I have a lot of people ask me to co-sponsor bills, and like half of them, I'm like, you know, I'm a Republican, right? But okay, I appreciate the fact you're reaching out. And then there's others that are just kind of dropped in you know, that are messaging bills that have no expectation of being taken up in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Protect Our Democracy Act, that's one of them, right? H.R. 1, that was one of them. H.R. 4, that was one of them. Um, they're things for the Democrats to run on or hit Republicans on rather than anything that is tried to met out and say, okay, you know, we can find areas of common agreement. Like I said, Emergency Powers, Electoral Count Act. Um, but it a lot of it tips into, especially with POTA and, and some of the prior election bills, it's actually a federalization of elections in ways that is not only unprecedented, but also sets a a new standard for how the federal government can intervene. That again, you know, I, I don't want the Democrats to have that power. I don't want the Republicans to have that power down the line either. Like that's just not good. 
Right. I mean, it, it, you know, we talked about this the other day um, on the Patreon, which you should subscribe to. So if you want to know exactly what I was talking about, you have to pay at least $10 a month. I learned. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can read the fine print. Paper. Come on. It's really good that our uh, congressman can actually read as <laughs> on, they're standing up for okay, things. On paper, yeah. there's no fine print. It's just all of these things of like, oh, and uh, yeah. I mean, oh, I, and no, that's what bills are. You read all that stuff. Oh, and we're going to change this. No, it's funny because. I think that, um, you know, we, I mentioned this the other day, uh, Naomi Klein's book Dis- about disaster capitalism, this idea that, you know, libertarians in particular come in when, you know, Katrina happens and they say, OK, school choice, it's destroyed. Now we're going to there's an element of that that's going on here, too, of the disaster of, of January for uh, January 6th and saying, OK, the, here are all the things we have to do to remedy it. And some of them are kind of undemocratic or unprecedented in some way. And, Peter, I think we actually agree on a lot of these things, because it would I think if you listen to the podcast and with a certain area, maybe think that we didn't because we criticize this a lot because we're criticizing the kind of media coverage of it. And I'm wondering um, what you think about this, because you just said, you know, something that I think is very, very true and underappreciated that Donald Trump, of course, has this power. And we've been concentrating more and more power in the executive. Had. You, if he, if had. Yeah, this, well, he's, still president, president, he's still the president. Well, in his own yeah. mind, he is. So let's just, <laughs> let's just indulge him right now. It's President Trump uh, from the Southern White House. He says, like, I mean, this all this stuff could have been so much worse if he actually exercised a lot of that power. Do you think that there is, you know, a little bit of heavy breathing here? I mean, how do you sort of how do you how do you think about that language when people talk about the authoritarian moment, the sort of quasi dictatorial moment, whatever the language people use that, you know, whether it's an insurrection a coup attempt, all this stuff. My take on that has been pretty straightforward. And I think, you know, I know Camille definitely agrees with me on this, is that it's a bit overheated and it's overheated for political purposes. I mean, when you hear that stuff, do you think it's a bit over the top or being there on January 6th, maybe change your mind on that? Yeah. So, okay. You, you um, as mentioned, like the uh, domestic terrorism earlier, yeah. mm-hmm. where, you know, I am, that's where we get into the denotation, the connotation, right? If the denotation, right? Uh, terrorism, you know, trying to influence, you know, a political process by violent means. Yeah. I mean, there was an element of coercion and intimidation there. Um, the connotation is Oklahoma City, right? You know, it was not a car bomb that was, you know, the specific aim to inflict massive casualties. You know, so that's where, you know, I, I kind of find myself and it's like, ah, I mean, that you're, you're, you're kind of drawing the wrong conclusions, but, you know, you're not, I, I can justify something to a point. To me, so much of the reaction to January 6th has been similar to, or some of the reaction to January 6th, I should say, and we'll get to the media in a second, has been similar to the reaction to, you know, the November election and some of the crazier parts on the right, when folks start to advocate for military coups, when they start to advocate for <laughs> you know, overthrowing you know, the government violently. It's this idea of like, we have to kill it to save, it. you know, and that, that was, you know, obviously manifested on the right, but we're talking about the court packing, talking about there's all of these, I mean, the, the, God, the democratic conversation around the filibuster is so incredibly tedious. Um, well, Mitch McConnell during the Trump administration, when they had all both houses of Congress is like, adamantly defending it and now um you know the dems kind of can't wait to get rid of it which again like okay 
let's let's see how that's going to play out in 2025. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? Like, so there there's a tendency on both sides to have a flight 93 mentality in terms of we either think that we're going to lose or that our power will be so short that instead of trying to you know be I guess reasonable in your ambitions, you you go maximalist approach and you know knowing you're going to go out of government, but hoping that you can just kind of notch enough things along the way, uh, even though those will all be readily reversed, right? Like right now, 50-50 Senate, Kamala Harris tiebreaker, you know, Pelosi has the slimmest majority that either party has had since World War II. And one of my colleagues on the, the left, Abigail Spanberger from Virginia said, you know, nobody elected Joe Biden to be FDR, but his policies are a combination of FDR and LBJ. Uh, and FDR had... You know, the equivalent today of 75 Democratic senators. He had, you know, over 300 uh, House members. Like, that is a mandate. Mm -hmm. Biden has no mandate, but yet it is, we're, we're just like grasping on, like, by the dint of our fingernails and we're just about to collapse. But, you know, whatever we can do until that point, we'll do. And, you know, God bless Joe Manchin because he's the only thing that's actually trying to moderate and, and be a force that says, hey, um, you know, kind of pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered, mm, right? Yeah. I mean, because I, 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 I had a reporter ask me, they're like, well, aren't you worried about the state of the Republican Party because all this crazy things? I'm like, well, yeah, but look at the Democrats right now, right? I mean, the, the voting public is not baking in that political violence component. And again, I think they're, they're, it has manifested itself more viscerally on the Republican side, but it has the potential on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and I could easily see that happening. What they're looking at, you know, it, well, if the Republican Party is doing such a poor job, how come Glenn Youngkin, you know, kicked Terry McAuliffe royal? Uh, you know, the, the, that, that, me, that penalty may be playing out. Just answered your own question. It was Terry McAuliffe. <laughs> yeah, so, very hard to like him but by the way i think it's a really sad state of affairs when somebody says flight 93 and i think of michael anton and not the people who died on flight 93 oh yeah oh, it's actually i mean i'm very serious about that, that. was it's my like, reference yeah, yeah no i know oh, my, it's like yeah, yeah. it's For a michael anton Lord. thing and i'm like oh yeah. we've actually come to that place and by the way just a, a, a note i think that if you got up on the house floor and with that definition which i understand on on terrorism if you referred to antifa as trying to uh, as a terroristic organization uh -huh. people would be you'd be on ms NBC being slated for two days of being yep. a, a hyperbolic nutbag. So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of unidirectional where, where that's applied. But which anyways, is, you know, which is well, well, it's interesting because as, as I was listening to you talk a moment ago, you just said that political violence that folks recognize that this is a thing more so on the right. And yeah, they they forget the many prominent examples um, that we were visited that were visited upon us not so long ago, um, just before the election, the the ones that people feared might materialize when they were boarding up Washington, D.C. and New York City and various other cities across America for fear that Donald Trump might actually win the election. That was a that was a real thing that happened in the United States that everyone it seems was, to, yeah. or many people seem to ignore. So here's here's a question that I have about the January 6th proceedings that are taking place on Capitol Hill today. What is the point? What are they trying to figure out exactly? Is it about culpability for the president because when i hear those meadows tweets read aloud and i hear donald trump jr saying 
this shit is crazy. He's got to come out and make a statement. That doesn't suggest to me that there is a grand conspiracy being orchestrated by Trump in his inner circle to try and to to precipitate a, a violent event on Capitol Hill so that they could seize control of the country. It doesn't tell me that. In fact, it suggests the opposite. A lot of people on the right were deeply concerned about what they saw. Was there perhaps some malfeasance, incompetence, general badness on the part of the president in not responding more quickly, more forcefully? That's a legitimate question to explore. But I'm not sure that's what's being explored here. And certainly, if we're prosecuting people for not participating in what some people might appropriately, I think, view as a largely partisan exercise, Congress has a right to issue these subpoenas. Mm -hmm. And they even have a right to do these references to the Justice Department so that there could be these legal proceedings. But there is something about kind of the precedent that's being set here and the general political climate and atmosphere that's being cultivated. These are, you know, they become political prosecutions, whether or not they're explicitly political prosecutions. Well, and and to get to to your point on, on kind of what is it after, right? Yeah. And this is what I wanted from a bipartisan independent commission. Something that kind of runs through like the TikTok of events and what was occurring behind the scenes and things that maybe didn't rise to the level of a crime being committed, but certainly had a bearing on identifying the weakness of our institutions or things the public ought to know. You know, what what safeguards do we need to put in place so that we're kind of disarming whatever armament was found that was able to kind of be weaponized on the sixth. Uh, Like that, that's what I was hoping for. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if if I'm looking at what, if I'm putting the best read on the intent of the select committee, you know, DOJ is going to look for criminal behavior, right? You know, there might be limited, you know, Senate oversight, you know, committee investigations and within their jurisdiction, but there's nothing that kind of looks at the totality and, and again, the things that fall short of criminality, so they're not going to come up and, and kind of be prosecuted, but also are important for the public to know, right? You talk about the text from Don Jr. I mean, the in, in my mind, all of those reactions were very natural. Now, you had some people who were reacting, and this has been, I think, my paramount frustration. They reacted one way as things were occurring or in the immediate aftermath, and then they kind of like took a pause, saw which way the wind was blowing. And then decided to, after the fact, change the tune, you know, okay, no, it, um, you know, and and cast doubt on, you know, reasonable interpretations of events, find ways of making it acceptable and okay. Like the the normalization, the dismissal, the excuse making, um, you know, I, 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 I also was not super comfortable with personal text messages being read aloud. I see the historical value in seeing, you know, prominent officials what their reaction was versus what it became. I mean, you look at some of the public comments in the hours and days after, and then what those folks are saying now, and then they look like they're from two different worlds. Uh, the, but it, it does start to tread into very uncomfortable territory, right? Because of the fact that it's going to be inherently political. Now, to your point, like Congress does have that authority. If Congress cannot hold people in contempt, if they cannot hold subpoena or issue subpoenas and then have a way of enforcing them, that power of inquiry that rests within Congress is, you know, completely, uh, you know, impotent 
you know, there, there's just kind of nothing there. It's it's dead letter. You can send it out and you can tisk tisk, but that's about it. So it, that's sort of the tension is both the institutional prerogatives and also not losing sight of of what precedent is being set with what's occurring today. And I, I mean, I'm my my assumption was never that Donald Trump was sitting there tenting his fingers and saying, "Oh, our plan is coming to fruition." Like there was some organized effort from the top down in order to have, you know, his folks go and storm the Capitol. I frankly think that he was more than happy to whip it up. He was more than happy to to kind of sow all of that. And there was never that, well, hey, should we maybe think about what might occur when you're telling people that November 3rd was a stolen election? and the greatest assault on our democracy, and that January 6th is the day you seek remedy and recourse by preventing Congress from certifying, maybe that's not going to, maybe that will have, oh, hopefully unintended consequences. And if those were the intended consequences, not that they were organizing, but that they were more than happy, more than, you know, acting in an incredibly negligent, irresponsible manner and not giving a consideration to what that might lead to, but basically doing that whole, you know, well, we didn't order them. We just laid the preconditions. We just kind of gathered all the tinder and then had some open flames nearby. And Oh, the fire caught. I, I mean, I fully agree with that. But isn't that what the impeachment vote was? I mean, the impeachment vote is essentially saying you did this, that um, you might not have controlled it, but you, you created the yeah, you, you, you bear no. responsibility. Yeah. And, and so I guess the, the, the second question there is, is if it's not looking into did Donald Trump and his minions actually orchestrate this from the top? Then what is the purpose to Camille's question? Because, you know, I, I mean, there are a lot of people, I know you're not actually saying that that's, you don't believe that he was tenting his fingers and doing that. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that do think that though. And, you know, photographs of, of, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? The three percenters or whatever these weirdos, what are the, the other? Uh, oh, yeah, Oath keepers. The Oath other? keepers. Yeah. That's the ones I'm thinking of that are, you know, guarding Trump people, et cetera. And there is a kind of conspiratorial thinking about it. And that would be incredibly important if it was orchestrated from well, the top. You know? To be clear, I mean, some of those three percenters and Oath keepers, I mean, they went in with like a more specific objective and they're yes. the only yeah, ones, yeah. you know, getting the conspiracy charges. Yeah. Um, but they did that on their own, right? Like Correct. with their buddies. Right. To our, to right. our understanding. We, we don't have any evidence that they, yeah. that they had, yeah. you know, yeah. deeper coordination with Meadows via text message, for example. Correct. So, but, but you also don't have any evidence that I wasn't perhaps coordinating with those people. So oh, it's your name, Ali Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. I'm they sure all, they all look alike. Now. Whatever. Yeah. Because of the Islamophobia. I have to change the name. Uh, no, but like, it, isn't that uh, even like, separating you know should this happen should this not but isn't like it more interesting to actually not think about it in terms of this is going to produce a pot at the end of the rainbow in terms of it's your fault it's interesting to figure out how um a riot happens i'm not even calling this riot, but like in the sense that an unplanned thing that goes spins out of control um and that uh, that everyone's kind of freaking out about no one precisely planned it, yet it takes place like as an informational exercise that actually fascinates. No, me. I, I, no that, I, that would be great if that's what we were doing. 
it, it so, would be I great mean, if there was an appetite for that. But is, isn't that, is, the word, is that not what we're getting out of this, re, regardless of the fact that it is heavily politicized? Because it's government, isn't Camille? Isn't government political? I but, mean, like, before, isn't it a, a tautological objection to the behavior of Congress that what it's doing is political? Of course, they're fucking Congress. Yeah. But, but before you, before, because I want to hear Camille's response to that, and and, and Peter's uh, Pete, uh, Representative Pete. As I recall now, yeah. uh, I just decided that unilaterally. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I I understand that. But at the same time, is that isn't that the role of historians? I mean, is that Congress's role to actually you know get to the truth and adjudicate everything that happens? They can in cop politics, up. Right? They can cop up the powerpoints and the text messages. Uh, yeah, guess, and look, so. I'm not I'm not disagreeing with the existence of it. And anyway, I do believe it's a you know very very politicized process. But that's just the nature of of Congress is going to happen that way. So and it's and you have to object to those things. But if if it is just an information gathering exercise that has these great partisan benefits for one party. I just would say leave that to the New York Times or a journalist. I can appreciate the need to try and understand what happened. I can appreciate the limitations on a congressional subcommittee organized in order to pursue these things and the likelihood that it will be captured by political interests. But to the extent this important thing is being subverted by people who are politically interested but who are behaving in a way publicly that suggests that they're doing something magnanimous and that that honor is what is compelling them to act here and to speak truth to power. And I say, no, fuck that. That is something, <laughs> something is amiss here. And there are people who are being kind of openly conspiratorial, drawing allusions to people being dangerous members of an organized effort to unseat the president most of the people being prosecuted for their role in January 6th are not being prosecuted for being members of some broader conspiracy. And that matters if we're the sort of people who are actually concerned about the state of the polity. And at the same time, the machinery of government is still operating in such a way that massive amounts of money are being spent. The transformational legislation that is being considered and demanded by the current administration and I'm always concerned about people's inability to qualify their fears and their ability to overstate their concerns, even when they're talking about things that I'm genuinely concerned about as well. And what happened on January 6th bothers me. But what I see happening post January 6th, this bothers me as well. Losing the importance of that day to kind of the partisan opportunity it presents for people on the left or the right, whether to demonstrate their fealty to Donald Trump or to, de to demonstrate the depth of their loathing for him by creating, you know, some sort of veneer of conspiracy that they can layer over top of it. And if that's happening against the backdrop of a mainstream press who is now increasingly represented by people who insist that the only responsible thing for a serious journalist to do is to call out all Republicans for being monsters who hate democracy, who who, who are actually members of, of some dangerous anti-democratic movement. That whole context makes me very concerned. No, I, I mean, it, that it plays into the accelerationism, right? I mean, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and a, and a couple other members of the Freedom Caucus went to the, the Metropolitan Detention Facility and got their little tour. And it's like, oh, wow, that's fantastic that suddenly 
you're concerned about pretrial detention. Right? <laughs> and, and they've raised all these issues. You know, I, I don't think she's ever heard of Camille Browder, but they've raised all these issues. The U.S. Marshals came in and inspected it and they ended up moving out of the Metropolitan Detention Facility basically everybody who wasn't January 6th because they realized that the standards for them were demonstrably higher than the, the substandard level of, of detention that a lot of the other folks were held there. It was actually a massive black eye on the, um, on the, you know, uh, district of Columbia, you know, uh, it's not under the police, but they're kind of detention facility, uh, folks, they're corrections facility folks. So, there's there's this like kind of this rank hypocrisy all around and, and the the word like sanctimonious comes to me so often hearing mm. colleagues you know either i mean on the right thinking that uh you know oh my goodness like how can we possibly not condemn folks trying to leverage and weaponize intimidation and coercion of, of public officials. Like this was horrendous. It's like, well, but again, like we had a whole summer that was basically predicated on local officials having to bow down under the threat of like the, you know, people assaulting them on the streets or yelling at them, the protests, uh, protests that, you know, basically always had that thin veneer of, but we can slip into violence real quick if, if our concessions aren't met. Mm -hmm. And I had a number of conversations we had. Um, I mean, nobody, nobody was seriously injured, but I mean, we had, you know, police cars that were firebombed. Um, we had our, our, you know, probably a couple million dollars worth of damage in our downtown area. Um, and you know, the, the feeling of powerlessness, um, that, that, that left in local officials. I mean, I, I remember those conversations and just saying like, well, what, what can we do now? The summer riots were not, they did not have a concrete objective, right? And that was part of the question of like, what can we do to kind of diffuse this? Like, we don't know what the folks who are, are, you know, out in the streets, like we actually have a really progressive criminal justice reform system. It's been really great and bipartisan in Michigan, everything from, um, you know, no, well, not, not full no cash bail, but a lot of, you know, understanding of not getting folks trapped into having to pay a fine and then having to be detained because they can't pay the fine and then missing their job and then just like that cycle starting but the the rank hypocrisy is is always on view and and i i started to mention this earlier talking about defund the police the reason why that movement runs out of steam is because the rubber hits the road at the local level right you can talk about defund the police in dc as an abstract concept and you're never held to account for what that actually results in if you're a mayor if you're a city commissioner and, and you're advocating for this, your constituents are sitting there saying, hold on, slow your roll. What are you actually proposing? Because we're actually worried about crime in our neighborhood. And when we are, we may not be happy with the way policing is being done, but we kind of want it to be better. We don't want it to go away or, or, or be reduced. Right. I mean, like they're kind of missing that boat. And in so much of this, if I can, diagnose what I think of the fundamental problems in this country. I mean, it's one that everything has flowed upwards. And as it's flowing, it also flows from more accountable bodies like legislatures to less accountable bodies like executives. Hmm. So when something happens, the first question isn't, well, is it a government responsibility to respond to it? If so, what's the lowest level that could handle it in a competent manner? Um, and, and as we're doing that, let's you know, look for legislative rather than executive actions because they'll have more buy-in. No, it's 
well, what's the president going to do about it? And so we've imbued that office Mm -hmm. with so much power that, you know, Joe Biden releasing 50 million gallons from the petroleum reserves or or whatever the amount was, uh, the strategic um, petroleum reserves. And he's turning around saying, look, you know, Ron Klein has a little chart showing that gas prices went down two cents. They could have gone up. They'll never go down. And they shouldn't. They are now people st- need to be they're taxed. $65 a gallon now. And I, that's, that's, for like, that's for 84 octane. I don't even know what the real thing. <laughs> Peter, before we let you go, I was in your office a couple weeks back. I did an interview with you for a piece that I'm doing. Great interview, by the way. I was fantastic. You were yeah. really, really, I was really, really good. I looked good. I sounded great. Did you comb your hair that time? Cause that's, uh, that's, no, no, I was actually at my shirt off. Yeah. <laughs> Just so I could look great against the bear was, grease. Oh my God. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I, we finished filming and the bozos that I worked with were, were breaking down their gear and I said something to you when we were kind of walking out. And, you know, I think it comes from all of us are either libertarians or have that instinct. And we come to that conclusion in so many ways by watching the dysfunction in Washington and, you know, traveling on the subway in New York and seeing that the government really, there's no competition. They do nothing well. I said to you, because we're talking about your primary challenger. I said, why do you do this? Like, why the fuck? <laughs> Why the fuck are you doing this? This is fucking ridiculous. You gotta stop. And you said I like this job, which I was like, I'm sorry, yeah, what? Can yeah. we go back and set the cameras up again? Yeah. So I can berate you for liking this job. <laughs> Why the fuck do you do this? Well, I, I think you asked question. me that. Yes, I did. Yeah. But now I want it for all the fifth column listeners yeah. to know your absurd and totally unconvincing answer. <laughs> <laughs> for no, the people. No. For the yeah, for he the people. people, it's it's a it's an, an essential element of patriotism and honor. <laughs> um, no, I I mean I think it's so much of, of the thinking, is, and this was in many different forms, but it, it's inherently short term, right? Like the thing that surprised me most about coming to Congress was I assumed people were the goal was to win the majority, to be in a position to govern so that you could implement the philosophy, the policies, like the, the, the approach that you think would be best for the country. And what has been most staggering in, 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 you know, Alberta kind of mentioned naivete, like my fundamental naivete was thinking that when so many individuals, like there's a collective, massive, massive collective action problem. Uh, I mean, you can fundraise and get more money when you're in the minority than when you're the majority, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You you can you can say things when you you can vote in ways in the minority that you don't have to worry about the responsibilities because well they'll take care of that issue that I'm just going to punt on. Uh, you know, fundamentally that that short termerism, all it's doing is creating that acceleration of all the negative trends and all the wrong trends. And and I'm on on the youthier side, um, and and trying to think a little bit long-term, I, I'm not going to lie. It is a massive pain in the ass, right? Yeah. I mentioned trying to have an articulable standard. So I'm not a raving hypocrite in <laughs> acting one way under president Biden. Then I'll act in 2025 under president Trump too. in his you know, second. <laughs> <laughs> Eric or, right? 
if yeah, either of you get is, is that an endorsement? I think I, mean, I just heard an endorsement. Yeah, it is. It is a resignation, <laughs> not literal. But, um, but, but, I mean, how do you kind of create that consistent standard? And every, like I said, everybody else, like not everybody else, but there are there are good folks who try to grapple with issues, and then there's a lot of other folks who realize that. Don't give a fuck. I mean, why? Yeah. There, there's no reward, right? That the public surprised you, though, honestly. I, I mean, Mr. again, Mr. Meyer like, goes to Washington. No, but that's the <laughs> thing, right? Like, I'm not some like doe-eyed babe who's sitting there, you know, thinking the world is all like rainbows and sunshine, right? Like, I this morning yeah, you I had a bunch of hypocrites. Eh? I, I don't yeah, I thought you were a Democrat, but you're a Republican. I don't even know. Well, no, no, this morning. This morning, I literally had a against you. Yeah, no, I mean, I I was having breakfast this morning with the guy in Afghanistan and literally been like, okay, so I mean, you know, if I were to try to have a Codell and like sit down with the Haqqanis, like, how would that look? Right. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we effectuate a way so that Biden doesn't turn his back in Afghanistan, leave millions to die of famine, you know, and because he wants to focus on build back better and Afghanistan in the headlines. Oh, that's icky. Right. Um, the massive, massive fuck you, Biden, on that. Sorry, let's go, Brandon, is the way I, I should phrase that. Um, At first, I thought you were comparing him to the Haqqani Network, and I was like, that's a bold one. Send that to the Daily Mail. No, no, no. The Haqqanis are really politically savvy, and they have a fantastic organization. No, they, they accomplish what they're set out to that's do. That's right. right. That's true. Like, no, they are a very effective organization. Build uh, back better for the 7th century. <laughs> Build back Botter Corps. I think um, no. But so, you know, I, I I have a very low estimation of, you know, the depths to which humanity can sink. But it just it like the, the thing is just the fundamental. Just like idiocy. Yeah. Right? Like you're, you're not. I mean, prisoner's dilemma is not wrong, but like there's a component of it. It's just it's so many. So many things where you just sit there and realize, like you, you realize this is not going to work out well for you. I mean, go back to January sixth and the the objections. It's like, okay, so we're all going to collectively lay the groundwork for the Democrats the next time around when they're in the majority in the House and the Senate, and um, a Republican is elected, they can basically claim voter suppression and not seat it. That that's what we are creating you know the standard in this process of of you know finding the thinnest most conspiratorial bullshit read on which to hang our hat um and, and our hat's going to fall down right like it's not even attached to the wall because we're in the minority so it's not going to work but we're giving that power to the other side yeah. and you know they were like well but that's like two years down the road. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's what the Bush administration didn't understand about expanding executive power. The, the Obama administration was like, you know, we're going to use this. And they did. Or Harry Reid about abolishing the judicial filibuster exactly. or the filibuster for judicial appointments. Like yeah. that was all well and great to get your circuit court nominees. <laughs> um, and now we have, you know, a 6-3 court. Like how'd yeah. that work well, out Well, pretty soon you? we're going to have a 75-3 court. We'll show you. Yeah. Maybe a bunch of people from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, God. Adjudicating cases about yoga. <laughs> goat yoga. <laughs> An unpasteurized goat milk. 
they, uh, they'll have the they'll have the pronouns as yeah, the right. introduction, <laughs> and they'll have the indigenous um, acknowledgement. Oh yeah, land sure. acknowledgements. <laughs> the land what is the Supreme Court land acknowledgement? I have to look that one up. Oh yeah, yeah. I have to see where that's that's probably sitting on some sacred. They still land. have the statue of Muhammad in the Supreme Court. I think they do. Uh, they might. I mean, yeah. they took the one down here in New York. In New York. Yeah. Yeah, but, but we'll have, we should maybe start a campaign. Do I get that? We should start a whole bunch of campaigns of things we don't believe in to see what kind of fucking idiots will take it up and actually mm-hmm. make it successful. So we'll sure I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to see the the results of that particular no. experiment. But Congressman, I mean, unless you've got some some closing thoughts for us, just want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you. you making the time to do this. Always, always, always a pleasure. And you know and- what sucks for us. You didn't say anything that would get you in trouble. <laughs> I'm sitting there with a little pad, like, okay, just clip this one and send mm-hmm. it to Politico, but nothing. You just, <laughs> no, say, I did. You just say, let's go, Brandon. Yeah, you I did. just said, let's go, Brandon. But it was yeah, in the context he, he of the them other abandoning as well. Afghans. Yeah. Right, yeah, but you said it out loud. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, I, I will say, I did drop an F bomb, yes. right? So no, that's, that's a little yeah. non decorous, um, yeah. which were the first time I did that on the record. I had a it was on January 7th and I had a reporter asked me, you know, well, how are you feeling right now? And you I, said, I fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Joe Manchin. I asked her, I was like, well, what's your, what are your like print standards? Right. Like, do you print profanities? And she said, well, we're a family publication. So I go, okay, yeah, I'm fucking furious. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the, 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 for some reason, this, this reporter didn't, didn't print her response that we're a family publication just had, you know, when asked how he's feeling, Rep Meyer said, um, you know, what's your policy on printing profanities? And then the next response was, I'm fucking furious. I'm like, okay, that's a little deceptive. Yeah. I thought we we're going to get like some, um, asterisk, you know, ampersand. They the fuck? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. What publication mm. is this? That's not very family oriented. Politico. <laughs> God, what, what family is that? Politico. Bottom <laughs> feeders. That's, God. Yeah. You, yeah. Your teenager's going to read Politico. Yeah, exactly. You're not, yeah, you're the you're nine not year old at the kitchen table. So, Andrew, can I do the French goodbye? Because now I'm just. Oh, no. God. Please. Lord in heaven. Julian Assange. Oh, my God. What, really? That's, journalist or enemy of the state? Oh, that's fine. Both. That's a quick one. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman. Congressman, what say yeah, yeah, it's actually a good yeah, question. It is a good question. Full and complete pardon? No. I, I would not give him a complete pardon. Now, I frankly think... Wow. Why do you hate the free I, press? I, well, I have a Sorry, much man. bigger oh, issue. Oh, no. Now, I don't think the CIA should have even contemplated assassinating him. I think that was some, I think that was dismissed. But like, no. oh, what, what, yeah, what, what are you... <laughs> no, I'm glad we have you on the record of not wanting to assassinate people. <laughs> yeah. uh, hey, he had an executive order on assassinations too. I'm just going to keep pointing over my shoulder at the, Gerald, Ford. Uh, Gerald, Gerald R. Ford. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, they, well, let me just first say, like Bradley slash Chelsea Manning, um, that whole like I, I there I have zero sympathy there. Like that was complete bullshittery i was in iraq when all that went down and we had to we had to disable all of our 
CD drives on our laptops. So I had to make all these presentations for the Iraqis and I had to like print them out and then like rescan them so they can put them into a PowerPoint. It was an absolute nightmare. So I will never These Americans, do that. they have no technology. Uh, it's really about your like tech problems, Meyer. Oh, yeah. 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 Bradley Manning. I suppose the war state, but God damn it, yeah. it delayed me five minutes in a PowerPoint. Chelsea Manning made me scan things. And like the collateral, <laughs> the collateral damage video that was like, whoa, like the, like that there wasn't, I mean, that was, that was bad, but it wasn't yeah. a war crime. Like that was within the Geneva Conventions. They call it collateral under, murder, by the way. Mm, sorry, collateral murder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They were throwing no, the scale a little bit on that. It, it, tragic that reporters were killed in that context, but they were also walking with like, you know, next to guys with RPGs in an active war zone like that, that gets problematic. Like it's highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to Assange, um, I don't know. He just kind of seems like a shitbag in general. Um, I, I think it doesn't sound like a standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, well, it, okay. The standard is when he was encouraging, and I think it might have been Manning, encouraging them to basically conduct the hack. Like you become an accessory to that. Now again, do you? Do you? Like I like, think it was. You, I, think I it was, know that you have access to something. Sure, would like to get some of that. Which is a pretty standard journalistic thing, regardless of the other mm-hmm. non-journalistic things he did. But that not, not asking me to give something to you. But if you say and here's how you should go about it. Right. Like the not the passage, but the acquisition, because that was the whole, you know, key. The question, at least as I understand, it. I know there were people who were like massive Julian Assange, like the, the like Glenn Greenwald, like you kind of go down and, yeah. into that camp. Um like I said, I spent yesterday reading with 300 pages of lawsuits and judicial opinions and CRS reports and all these other things. I, I am why extremely. Why this job? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting back I to the you're making my point for me. <laughs> yeah, I think. By the way, it was the accusation was that he was uh, suborning uh, Cebu. Uh, from from um, was it Lulsec? I think one of these guys. And at the time, I found it pretty convincing. But since then, I found it less convincing. Um, but yeah, I think there was there was that is the charge. But if if that is not true, uh, Peter, is that does that like mitigate the circumstances if he's actually just receiving that information? And then even if he's just saying fuck it, I don't care about the translators. I don't care about people putting in harm's way. I'm just going to publish it. Does that change your mind in any way? I, I do. Well, whether it's a crime, um, I, I do think there's an ethic. If you if the standard is I'm a journalist, I think there's an ethical obligation to make sure that you're able to communicate what needs to be communicated and reduce whatever collateral damage may occur. Right? I mean, now in the context of the what Manning released um, in that large dump on WikiLeaks, uh, I think that there were obviously it did not reflect well on the, you know, everything was at the secret level and most things at the secret level are not that interesting. I, mean, I think there was a British diplomat off the record who basically said, well, the, the thing I really learned was that like these Americans could actually write pretty well. Like they're, they're Oh yeah, like, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. This is not like diplomatic. <laughs> it was probably the most scandalous thing in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's, you know, a, a significant component. Um, it's 170 years with the espionage act of 1917. Seems kind of a lot. I mean, it's like going back to Alien and Sedition Act, right? Like, I yeah. mean, the not, not a good, year, not a good era for lawmaking. 
Well, anything that's 1917 is literally persecuting socialists who were opposed to the First World War. That's essentially what it is. Eugene Debs, but Woodrow Wilson, terrible individual. I had when Ron DeSantis was like, well, you know, we want to have this state defense force and people were accusing him of creating like a private army. It's like, you know, actually, you you just want a, a military that's like loyal to you. It's like so. The National Guard prior to Woodrow Wilson federalizing them in 1916, like literally were that like that was that intention. Um, And like, oh, well, yeah, well, we also did a lot of other things back in the day that we've since learned. It's like, yeah, okay, but not, you know, Woodrow Wilson, like resegregated the federal government like he was in, you know, uh, similar to Julian Assange, a shipbird. Uh, But, you know, I think on the on the opinion (laughs) side, you know, None of it really has a bearing on whether or not he was, you know, did commit like sexual assault or oh, God, anything. Peter, I love the fact that it's I said, a, you know, we don't have any yeah. like quotes to burn on. And then we say, OK, goodbye. And you're like, by the way, let me give you some quotes you can burn me on. Woodrow <laughs> Wilson is a shitbird like Woodrow Wilson. It's too complicated of a headline for most people, but I like it. Yeah, I think I'm on the safe side. Is his name on the campus at Princeton anymore? Oh, Wilson. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I'm an Assange. I was like, man, I missed that building renaming. No, that's at NYU under uh, Rosen. (laughs) By the way, at NYU, I just, I don't know if they have this anymore, but they used to have an Alger Hiss chair at at NYU, like long after the Venona decrypts came out. And we knew, we knew ages ago, but they have an Alger Hiss chair Mm. in sedition and uh, scumbaggery, I think is the, is the. Tying, tying a bow on all of that, some yeah. of the concerns around the January 6th commission were that, um, or the select committee, excuse me, that, you know, there were a lot of concerns raised that we're reinvigorating precedents that we last saw under the House Un-American Activities Commission. Mm-hmm. And, and you hear the things on the right that come, you know, over to the left. It's like, oh, they, they want to send all conservatives to Guantanamo Bay. I'm like, okay, come on. Like, don't hyperventilate. Then I'll see someone be like, these people need to be sent to Gitmo. I'm like, yeah. Oh my God, you're <laughs> taking the bait. <laughs> the, the, yeah. Yeah. All right. I hate you all. <laughs> no, not all, not all, but you are not helping. You are not helping. I just want to thank uh, America's worst congressman, Peter Meyer, who gets nothing done, uh, yeah. offends his party and hates America. Did you know that? Do not. He loves Julian Assange and he hates America. Oh, Maybe I misread that. <laughs> Peter, we actually do love you. So yeah, thank, thank you, you so thank much. You. I, I need the affirmation. In this <laughs> Before you come back, find out about the UFOs. Yeah. Oh my just, just figure it out. In fact, yeah. I wish Julian Assange was working because yeah. if he was, I would know about the UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> Therein lies the problem. That's the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Kind of they wouldn't be able to just sit on the damn videos and sit on the documents if Assange yeah. was on the job. That is the point. You have to murder. So what, what, <laughs> should the, what should the WikiLeaks website for extraterrestrial documents be called? Huh. Hmm. Hmm. UFO leaks is a little bit too on the nose. Yeah. Alien leaks sounds a little gross. <laughs> Ice leaks. <laughs> Don't old. <laughs> we'll figure it out before you get back. I have my homework assignment. You guys have. Your, All right. I appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. Thank you. New method of well, Congressman is gone. Um, I didn't know that he hated the free press. I mean, do you gentlemen share his conclusion that that we have to do something to stop journalists from telling the truth? Not just the uh, alien sedition and espionage acts, but this is a drawn and quartering the, act. The anti-Australian acts <laughs> of uh, 2021. <laughs> going to get him in the brig. It'd be great. It'd be fantastic. It might be more Kiwi, but um, 
Yeah, so uh, my problem with Assange never ended with him being in prison. That was never my idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, my problem with Assange was that I thought he was a blowhard and I thought he consorted with the absolute worst people that one could consort with. And that included, I knew knew this from Sweden because he had the, the WikiLeaks partner in Sweden and in Belarus were just like really bad people. This guy who went by many different names, Jürgen Yermas, all this stuff. And he's this like famous kind of anti-Semite who is a Holocaust denier. And Assange, like he he just had these people on his payroll who I just didn't, I, mean, I don't know if they were being paid, but they were in the organization that I just didn't think were good people and furthered the cause of press freedom. Because when you're taking those names and dis- distributing them immediately to the Lukashenko regime in Belarus, mm. uh, that's not somebody who cares about a free press. So I'm not saying that that is Assange himself, but I always had a problem with, you know, how, how some of this stuff was distributed. Um, you know, was it James Ball for the guy from the Guardian who went pretty hard at Assange and who I think worked with him at one point? Uh, and the same, you know, the Alex Gibney documentary, I think makes, and I have a lot of problems with Gibney, but that documentary, We Steal Secrets, um, is pretty good. And it's a pretty rough uh, portrait of him. And there's also a guy who wrote a piece in the London Review of Books. Um, got an Irish name. I can't remember his name, but it was also a very critical piece. Um, but no, I mean, I don't think that any of that uh, deserves even a, a minute of jail time. Um, I think it's it's more a moral objection to some of his decisions and some of the people he worked with, uh, who I, I didn't like at all. And I don't really even understand at this point how one can hold him for as long as they have considering the initial charge was the Swedish charge that has been dropped by the Swedes. Yeah. Mm. And I just, I, I think the whole thing is really unseemly. And um, it, it, at this point is totally separated from what I think about Julian Assange. Yeah. And it should be. And we used to be able to hold those distinctions a lot better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's right. Uh, and it's also lopsided. Um, I think too, in the sense that it was easy for people to say, well, Larry Flint might be a scumbag, but he's a scumbag who's pushing the envelope of free yeah. speech. And um, and you know what? That describes Julian Assange in a and they probably both share an affection for Pamela Anderson, for example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like uh, it, it's it is jarring to see the radio silence, not of journalistic organizations. They've actually all been pretty good as far as I can tell. Uh, at least, you but know, not loud about it, though. I mean, no. and, uh, committee for to protect journalists. Uh, a few of them have been um, been but do, loud, but, but remember, like individuals, yeah. this, this like it's the Espionage Act. It shouldn't be used against journalists who are printing leaked material about national security. That's like that's the last thing in the world that you want the Espionage Act to be used for. And that should be like a full drudge siren. I mean, if we're mm-hmm. calling Chris Cuomo a journalist, then I think we can call Julian Assange. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not I, precious about the label. Yeah, I'm not precious about that. I, I, I yeah. think I was more precious about it in the past and I've yeah. become less precious about it. And I also think that, you know, the conversation about it in the past was pretty heated and it was pretty consistent. It was pretty constant. And I find, you know, I guess I get that people have an exhaustion and they're like, Julian Assange, that's retro. That's like 10 years ago. But I think it's more um, interesting now uh, of a conversation that he's actually in jail and has been in jail for some time. And, And again, I have 
just, I could do five podcasts of criticism of the guy, but I just want to know if journalists are doing the due diligence to ask as Camille asked Peter Meyer, representative Meyer, to ask, you know, people in positions of power, both in the UK and the US of that, you know, what is, you know, what is the evidence here? Because if it is suborning uh, sort of leaked material from people who are in that position, the more I've looked at that, the weaker that case looks. And even if that case is the strongest that you have, and if it's stronger than I actually remember, it just seems disproportionate of what's happening right now. I mean, the guy's been in jail for how long? I mean, the, the, the embassy, I don't, that's his fault. I don't fucking care. Like you didn't, no one was keeping in the embassy. That was everyone's like, oh, you know, he's been locked up in the embassy. That was his decision. He could have gone to Sweden, answered those charges. The idea that he was going to be extradited from Sweden was nonsense. And everyone knew that. And that he was going to be extradited from the UK is more convincing. And this is, and he's just gone to Sweden and answered those charges. His life would be a lot easier right now, actually. Because the charges were kind of bullshit. You don't think he would have been extradited to the US? From Sweden? No, I don't think so. Death penalty. Death penalty thing and just the nature of Swedish government and the kind of popular opinion in Sweden would just not allow that. I just would, would mm-hmm. not have happened. I, just, I mean, look, that's a, that's a the hunch. Albino yeah. hair. They're like, yeah. yeah, I recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's one of us. Right. Where's he from? Northern Sweden? That's not, that's not how they talk in yeah, Sweden. Yeah, they do. Right. Yeah. I, I live there. That's why they talk. Right. Just like <laughs> that. From Stockholm, right? <laughs> Josh, we're excited you're coming. And yes, I'm going to fucking talk to you like that all night. Oh. <laughs> and yes, I've been drinking for about five hours now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I, I think the the aggressive noises being made by the United States government during the period of his self-imprisonment, if you want to call it that, in the Ecuadorian embassy, I think – American officials bear some responsibility for that. If there were a different attitude about the prosecution of Assange, if there were more tension on the part of the public officials who found themselves in a position where they were perhaps appropriately, in some respects, concerned about the ability of the government to protect appropriately held secrets while balancing a legitimate concern for press freedom. I think I could tolerate a range of disagreement on these issues so long as someone is making it pretty obvious to me that they're engaged with that contextual difficulty. And the elected officials who have been responsible for government during the whole WikiLeaks drama, there hasn't been anyone in the White House who had the appropriate balance when approaching this issue. Not Barack Obama, the lawyer who was supposed to be the civil libertarian, and certainly not Donald Trump, who, you know, reading revelations about the CIA. I love plotting, plotting. Yeah, yeah, I remember that when he was running for office. Yeah. yeah. Um, but reading revelations about the CIA plotting to kidnap and maybe even assassinate the guy like that's that's a little crazy. That's a lot of crazy. A lot How, of and this is an honest question because I, I remember that being reported. I don't remember diving too deeply into it. How realistic was that? Was that an offhand comment from somebody? Was that like a directive? What was the actual context of it? I don't remember. Camille, do you remember offhand? I'm opening the, the link up again. And the first line I'm seeing in the top of the second paragraph is some senior officials inside the CIA. So obviously there are some things that we don't know. But at a minimum, I mean, it was never active policy. I mean, in no, it, it's, it inspired debate amongst Trump administration. Yeah, I don't know. We right. don't know. 
Yeah, and I don't know, and I'm I'm speaking without you know having sort of reminded myself of the story, but I'm sure they bat a lot of stuff around. I mean, when it comes, I mean, I think of it in the, in, in the same way of of um, you know the the January sixth stuff is like how realistic was it they were actually going to you know have a coup and overthrow the government in the election? Is it just kind of idle talk uh, that dumb people do? I mean, that might be the case in the CIA, but I imagine if it was tabled as actual policy, we would have seen a, a very think, different reaction. I think yeah. they have an office. I could be wrong. I they have the, the assassination office. <laughs> yeah, that's and a good one. Come in like, hey, uh, so should yeah. we? Uh, Says Dave Grohl. Yeah, like, don't like, oh. I don't like guy in Haiti. Let's get rid of him, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> to end with my friend. Always. And by the way, you can't cancel me for that because it's kind of a Greek accent. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's definitely the one that you were using. Uh, uh, yeah, he's my friend. You remember when, you, when Camille was in Greece? This is back oh when, like, my we, god! Oh yes, station we would actually call in. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, we called yeah. him in Greece, and the guy, and he, and we're like, "Can we talk to Camille?" I don't know Camille, my friend. <laughs> I was like, "Black guy? Oh, black man? Okay." <laughs> just hang up, and I call him back. Hello, my friend. You just hung up on me. Yes, you look for a black guy. Bye bye now, and just I was like, oh, we just want to talk to him. He's, he's, yeah. That was fucking. What was? What do we call him, Demetrios? I think Demetrios. Oh, Camille, my friend, a good man. He up having swimmy swims right now, my friend. It's not good. Oh man, back in the six, right now the with six the pack was in full effect. Oh, Jeez. you were looking very sexy, my friend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's where that um, animated GIF, I guess. Where yes, yeah, where you're like uh, flexing. Is yeah, that, is that from the Greek pool? That's it from is Greek pool, isn't it? Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's from Andrew Sullivan's Greek pool. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dangling. The Don't knock it until you tried it. I don't yeah. know. It's a great school. It's your problem, Sam, but it's Greek. I saw him when I was in D.C., um, and he's just the loveliest man. Wasn't that it, at the world's gayest dinner? Oh, my God. Holy cow. <laughs> it was like a Pet Shop Boys concert. I was like, what is going on here? And they're like, aren't you gay? And I'm like, I, don't, I guess. Let's just do it. Let's try it out. I am tonight. It was just like fun. Um, and it was like the day after. I still haven't watched it. It was like the day after he was on 60 Minutes. Andrew? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. There was a profile of him on 60 Minutes. I don't follow the MSM. Yeah, that that's a like a ago. pretty serious thing. Right. Yeah. Did you watch that clip? I did. What it aired? How was it? What do you mean, how was it? How was it? Like, the... Did they just call You didn't watch it either? Genesis? No, I didn't watch it. <laughs> you want to watch that fucking garbage? <laughs> berating, berating Welch for not knowing it happened mm. while, of course, not having watched it yourself. Yeah, at least I know it happened. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to. Like, now I, like, I know it happened. Now I made a decision. I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, we, we've got we've got plenty of time logged already, but I did want to spend a little time talking about a few other things. Um, you mentioned oh, Elizabeth Warren earlier, Moynihan, um, yes. and the piece that she wrote published in a some some paper in Boston um, calling yeah. for expansion of the Supreme Court. But it was yesterday that she was trolling Elon Musk, um, oh, Elon God, Musk, who was named Times Person of the on. Year. Um, yeah, she tweets. <laughs> she tweets in response to that particular article, quote, her voice. quote tweeting it. Uh, Let's change these red tracks code <laughs> so the person yeah. of the year will actually pay taxes and this stop freeloading off voice. everyone else. I'm just going <laughs> for shrill that? old lady, yeah, yeah. shrill old yeah. lady. Yeah, uh, kind of like shaking my head while I do it too. That's the most racist that. thing I've ever heard you do. Yeah, wow. Called. <laughs> um, I can't even believe it. Uh, it is by Jimmy Stewart. Now, now the, fact that she, the fact that she tweets something about Elon 
you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But it's Elon, the fact that Elon, Elon responds. Um, it's so good. If you'd open your eyes for two seconds, <laughs> you'd realize I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. Yeah. Don't this spend year. it all at once. <laughs> oh, wait. You did wow. already. Bang! Yeah. Headshots. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How do I put this? Yeah, give a fuck. <laughs> That's why he's the rich. I've met some billionaires. Uh-oh. I know a few, right? Yeah. Elon is the onlyest motherfucker I know who got a lot of money and act like it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Seriously. That's right. Like I, like I, I know people. You know what he's like? He's like a rapper. They you know he's, he, he really, like billionaires. Minus <laughs> like the gold chains and like the naked bras surrounding him at the pool. Beyond that, it does really seem like he's got like something in his yep. waistband, and you just don't know mm-hmm. what he's going to say next. Yeah. You have seen his haircut? That's great. <laughs> I love the it. fuck is that? Grimes just put a fucking hedge clipper in the side of his head. It was awesome. That's why I had to. That's why I had to bouncer. No, but the funny thing about it is that Elon obviously to camille's point is absolutely right because you're always saying like oh he's got fuck you money and it's like okay well why don't you say fuck you none of them say fuck you and i love the fact that he's so on the spectrum that he it's not even the money i think it's the spectrum he just doesn't (laughs) care and he's like don't spend it all in one place you did and i'm like oh wow love that shit yeah it's great what would happen if uh why did why the so by the way this is what I'm gonna tell you. I, this is not. I'm not gonna be mean just to lefties. Right? Uh-oh. I, I, Uh-oh. I'm not gonna just be mean to them. I mean to everybody, but I want to be mean to the lefties for a second. Just maybe just them now. Like this guy is doing all the shit that you want to do, right? Because big fleets of electric cars. He's getting us off, <laughs> off of fossil fuels. He's sending people into space. He's pretty great. But then the second he says to Elizabeth Warren. Suck my dick. I'm just, I'm, I'm, you know, quoting him, but not really quoting him. I'm just kind of putting it in a way. Everyone's like, he is America's or South Africa's biggest monster. But even before that, it's, he's it's, like awesome. You will see mainstream arguments of that. Um, isn't it terrible that Musk and Jeff Bezos are going, are spending all their money on space when, you know, they're obviously uh, organizing hell pits in tornado alleys in, yeah. in Kentucky, but also like that should be us. That should be the collective us that is spending this. And this is not just a, a left-wing phenomenon. This is also our friends on the new oh, right. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and also it's, it's a lot of, uh, of kind of anti-Trump neocon type of people who, you know, love the sense of American greatness are criticizing, uh, you know, we should have a collective grand project. There's a similar thing that happened Mike, Bloom, like Bloomberg, ten. It's called the Soviet space program. I mean, seriously. <laughs> um, and I would again commend people to watch the time I went uh, tangled with Lou Dobbs on Red Eye about precisely this Obama's uh, 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 kind of uh, encouragement of private space initiatives and uh, Lou Dobbs. Oh, because he started Space.com. He sure and did. I mentioned it. Oh, biggest I flop mentioned ever! It. Wow. And uh, yeah, because it was like it was like a, a, a Red Eye thing of like you know some asshole uh a rock star wanted to go to the moon or something and uh and ludob said something and i said well you know far be it for me <laughs> to step on the toes of the founder of space.com and then that was probably yeah, that was, that that was, was actually dropped the mittens right there he, he was literally fucking terry o'reilly over the fucking glass into the bleachers dude. wait but but didn't wait is ludob's does he exist anymore what happened to him uh, did well, he get did he get me too 
No, he did not. Um, you sure. I think I think there no. was, it was okay. more of a question of what to do with his uh, pancake makeup needs uh, back when the pandemic prevented people from applying uh, pancake makeup on him. Is that was that actually, was that what they said? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to talk out of school, but uh, no, like it's it, it, it's it, he's still on. He's still on. As far he's, as is he still on? No, he, he's not. No, he got he got oh, his, show, his show got axed. Yeah, oh, okay. this year. Plus, yeah, yeah, in February. Effective immediately. Wow. He was um, cancels longtime host uh, Lou Dobbs show, LA Times. It doesn't say, uh, oh, but, uh, over his um, assertion, maybe over his assertions of voter fraud in the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Wow. Lou had the truth and foxed in one of your. What we're learning here <laughs> is that I watch a lot of television. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's, by the way, um, I just looked down at my phone to check that, and I got a message uh, from my cameras at my house uh, that I can't see them again um, be- for a while because of the AWS, the Amazon Web Services outage today. And I was shooting mm. something and today, and I was shooting something in the metaverse, and I made a joke because we couldn't connect to this thing. And uh, I said probably <laughs> AWS went down again. And I was waiting, and it did, and I'm waiting for the people, and it's already happened on uh, Twitter who were like, you know what? This is what happens when you centralize power. <laughs> a big company, it goes down and all of our services right. go down. And I'm like, you know, it goes down twice, motherfuckers. You change to somebody else. And there are lots of other options beyond AWS. So I'm just encouraging people to look around for other web storage uh, options. Because- this whole podcast sounds like a Bezos apologia. Frankly, yeah. Oh, I mean, right. the guy can't run a fucking server farm to save his life. <laughs> I'm not apologizing he's, for him. I'm saying go somewhere else. He's not there anymore, and then things start to fall apart. He's See? in the fucking That's moon. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's working full time on the space stuff now. Yeah, yeah. Good um, formally, um, and beyond that, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida today making some headlines. Governor DeSantis has, I guess, we can't really say he's introduced a bill. Best I can tell is he's articulated his desire and released a one-page PDF and perhaps more, but I can't find any of this stuff. (laughs) There's a one-page PDF. We could read it to you in its entirety, but he is announcing plans to pass something called the Stop Woke Act. (laughs) Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act. Wait, is it wrongs to our wrongs kids? to our kids and employees act? The person comes up to senses invokes MLK. This is a this is a continuation of uh, what DeSantis began when he directed the Florida Department of Education to ban the teaching of critical race theory in K through twelve schools. This particular act would when he passes it at some point, codify the Florida restrictions, the ban that already exists, which was supposed to stop CRT forever and change America, but apparently it's not enough. This act would prohibit school districts from hiring CRT consultants. It would also empower folks to seek legal remedy on their own, a la the Texas abortion um, oh, legislation good. that was pretty controversial. Yeah, let's have lots of that. Pretty solid law that everyone agrees is going to stand up. Yeah, so it's not clear how this would work, but it brings that to mind. And I've seen a few people draw allusions to that. But also a major development here is that it would give people protection from private employers who are woke. If the private employers are doing, again, 
at the moment, it's somewhat vague and undefined in a dangerous and nefarious kind of way. But if employers are being woke and they're directing their wokeness at their employees, according to this piece of legislation, which does not yet exist, they will be able to sue the shit out of their employer. So if we were a a Florida-based podcast Mm -hmm. and we decided to have affinity groups, would would that be... One can't know. Probably. Mm-hmm. It, but <laughs> does this go in the other direction if like we had a podcast in Florida and we created like the opposite of affinity groups? <laughs> be offended and then like you right. sue us? Yeah. Who knows? It, it's so amazing how dumb conservatives have gotten on this. Is it if this is the right reading of it? And I haven't read it, so I'm just you know. Well, there's, there's of, again, there's a, barely a anything to read. Okay, so we don't even know. Yeah, there's a if flyer. We true, do not know what this legislation will look like. He, he no, Chris his, was excited though. Very excited. No, Chris was on stage with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be nice if we were in a place where we could actually interrogate him again about this sort of thing. But for whatever reason, you know, talk yeah. to that. Kind of very much anymore. So we'll actually have to see precisely what comes out of this. I, I think the most amusing um, element of all of this is at some point in this document that they released, they go through a litany of national examples of critical race theory. And there's an example from a Philadelphia elementary school that was encouraging fifth graders to celebrate, quote, black communism, unquote. And to simulate a black power rally to free Angela Davis from prison. Angela Davis was freed from prison <laughs> years ago, by the way. But, but they also it's go to Seattle, bad. San Diego, California, Springfield, Missouri, Buffalo, Arizona. The one thing that they don't have here are any Florida. examples of this shit happening in Florida, which so. I don't know. My um, relevant. <laughs> it's also funny that the same document does note that the Philadelphia school that I mentioned where they were doing the black communism rally at that particular school, 87% of the students will fail to achieve basic literacy by graduation. Now, I think that particular data point right there indicates to me precisely what folks ought to be focusing on and just what people need in order to push back against the insanity that is taking place in certain public schools, but apparently not so much in Florida anyways, the political theater associated with what DeSantis is doing has absolutely nothing to do with kids getting great high quality education. By the way, the Philadelphia <laughs> elementary school says they have to read about black communism. And by the way, none of them can read. <laughs> Can't read. It's um, okay. Can't Can't read. Read. So here's the thing at the end of this, I'm looking on the Florida gov website. Mm-hmm. And it basically is just an ad, like an, aggregating all of Chris Rufo's stories. Yeah. So Raytheon, <laughs> Bank of America, Google employee yes. uh, claims that America's uh, employee program claims that America is a system of white supremacy and that all Americans are, quote, raised to be racist more here. And I click on that. I'm a, it's going to go to another Chris Rufo story. Um, <laughs> here's the thing about that is that before I, I don't I haven't looked at those stories. Maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, before they had an argument, right? And the argument was, you can't really have a free speech debate about this when it's state teachers teaching children, young mm-hmm. children, right? Okay, 
we had a debate about that. We disagreed with Rufo on this stuff. We claimed that this was going to be problematic for a lot of reasons. And one of those, and I don't know if we do this in the podcast, was that it inevitably expands into to other areas of life. Uh-huh. No, no, no. This is about the kids. We're talking about that's the right. kids. That's and right. And now we have a bill that's literally talking about private corporations yeah. uh-huh. and what they can say to their employees. I have a great idea. This is a really, really good idea. I've thought about this a lot. I've workshopped it. Lots of consultants from Anderson Consulting (laughs) Center have come and talked to me about this. Um, uh, The big four, right? Yeah, the big four. They talk to you about this and they say, you know, um, you live in a white supremacist uh, culture. In my responses, you know, we sell yarn. And they say, no, 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 but it's white supremacist. And then I say, go fuck yourself and I quit. Or I say, go fuck fuck yourself and I keep my job. But... That is the result. That's what you do. That's how you respond to this stuff. You mm-hmm. fucking quit if you don't like it. And then you maybe go to Chris Rufo and make an embarrassment of the company. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, that suggestion that this might expand into other fields has been very quickly realized, hasn't it? It's been almost six months, just six months. And they've gone from it's not censorship. These are taxpayer funded schools. Now they want legal restrictions. Legal restrictions on the speech of private companies. I mean, it's just like I. In, in, I want. In, I want to shout out Camille Foster, of all people, um, <laughs> for uh, correctly identifying uh, back in July, was it, mm. um, when you teamed with some hysterics to write a piece for well, the one New York hysteric. Times, one hysteric, <laughs> and a couple other people to write a piece, a warning about these anti-CRT bills. I saw Camille called on twitter a cathedral operative yes recently yes cathedral who said that operative there's some moron on twitter Uh, somebody that you knew no no No. stranger Uh, what does that mean (laughs) you don't go down that rabbit hole it's it's all i'm going to suggest to you Uh, the idea that uh if you criticize someone who is also quite like Camille Foster, quite like this podcast, has been pointing out the absurdities and, and the exaggerations <laughs> been, of this world. For, kind of critical of this stuff. Kind of from the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even before the beginning. Because it's fucking stupid. But if you say, hey, look, that remedy's bad, then you're working for the Borg that wants to do all the terrible things around but then your throat. And that, like, Camille's looking to get his head padded, is get yeah. his fade, like, massaged um, uh, by people uh, from this. It's it's ridiculous. You have to start thinking better, all of you people. In, the, in, the, in 1936, 37, when you felt the cold gunmetal on the nape of your neck, before the trigger was pulled, you said, no, no, I'm really, I'm a communist. And then you're done. It's like, no, no, but broadly, like 98%, we're on the same page. Like, no, 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 we don't, we don't take that shit. Yeah. We, we go hundred percent or we go home. So, yeah. Good well, Lord. No, I mean, this, this, this seems to be, people. this Fuck seems to be a, a very bad look. I can't imagine it ends well, but it will perpetuate this culture war into the future and anger people yes. on the left and, make people on the right even more upset because that's the only thing that could possibly matter here. Be able to no, use this as an election issue for whether yeah, or not it improves. The second thing that matters is Ron DeSantis. It's, yeah. Never forget this is just about Ron DeSantis's political career. Yeah. That's it. If you think you're fucking, you know, raising the, 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 the sword against these horrible people, you're actually just doing Ron DeSantis's bidding to out-Trump everybody. He's one of these people that has the very, very simple idea that the Republican Party is Trump's party now, and the only way I can get ahead of everybody is to out-Trump everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm a smart guy. 
guy, I'm a normal guy, I'm sort of reasonable guy, but I'm just going to go like, what is, is this what this, the, the legislature should be focusing on in Florida? When, as Camille points out, all the examples are outside of Florida. And I'm sure that if I read all those examples, I'd be like, this shit is fucking crazy because I've seen that stuff close up. But at the and same, we've had listeners uh, like share God, hundreds tons, of examples, tons of examples of this. But like, imagine this in a legal framework. If you're in the particular um, offense here is, is private employers. If that is the case and you can say, well, I am being they're pushing politics on me at my workplace and it has nothing to do with my work. What are the other like the law doesn't have a carve out for being offended by politics. What else can offend you at work that you could bring to the court and say, I'm suing them. I have this job. I'm quite comfortable in it. I quite like it. But they're making this atmosphere bad for me because this sort of harassment. It's like it's basically sexual harassment. It becomes political. It's political harassment. And we have to do something about it with the courts. I mean, if that is what they're saying, and again, it could not be because they've given so little information. But if that is the case, because they are invoking private corporations, this, it is incumbent upon everybody who considers themselves a conservative. And I'm talking to those people because they're the ones that are trumpeting this on, on Twitter today to stand foursquare against it and say, this is fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. The state should not be interfering with, with what private companies do. That's nuts. And pursuant to what uh, Congressman Meyer was saying earlier about bills that are introduced with zero intention of ever getting a vote or yeah. making it to the Senate, um, you should know when you are being played for a symbolic political act and you should react accordingly, which is with derision for the people who do it. There's a whole superstructure of politicians, of activists, of people who are funding their 501c4s that are really excited because they can excite you uh, about this and loosen your wallet. Don't do it. Look for the bill. Look for the language in the bill and then like support it or not to fucking support a flyer. To support a press I know, conference. Isn't that, I mean, it, it's so Jesus, funny because what is our self-respect? What is our currency here in this podcast? Derision. <laughs> this is pretty much drunken derision. And it's like if people are surprised that oh, you don't like this way of handling it. It's like, no, just derision is the way to go. Make fun of these fuckers yeah. and all their dumb policies and like, you know, free Angela Davis. It's like, um, Okay, let's have a I mean that's just that's just it. You you have the moral high ground and there is an obvious appropriate response to that sort of excess. Yeah. Right? Like these people, these people do not have the interest of the students who are under their charge at heart. That is not what is motivating them to organize their free Angela Davis mock rally. This is a dangerously bad school system that is actively hurting kids from an academic standpoint. It is morally offensive that these people call themselves teachers and that these institutions refer to themselves as schools. That is a charge that one can get behind building better schools, better curriculum, making certain that students have choice and aren't trapped in these schools. That is something that one can meaningfully organize behind. But this other thing, this piece of legislation that doesn't yet exist that conflates K through 12 education and whatever's happening in private companies. There's a word for the state prohibiting private actors from being able to talk about things in whatever way they like. There's a word for that. 
I think that word is fucking censorship. And we referred to the critical race theory bans, these divisive concepts bans in K through 12 education as censorship before. And I was told, no, 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 Camille. No, 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 no. Can't be censorship because it involves the schools and the teachers and these taxpayer dollars. What is the excuse for taking precisely the same model and applying it in the context of a private company? What is the excuse? They're drunk on their own success. They think that they've been successful. They're going to expand it. I can imagine that someone is going to try to, to talk about anti-discrimination laws that are already on the books and how they this there's a precedent for this. And all we're trying to do is protect people from discrimination and being don't need to, to speak in a particular way. That is precisely it. One, we don't need it. And two, to the extent those things make for some fuzzy applications in certain contexts, the existing civil rights protections, at a minimum, at least there's a body of judicial work that's already been done that one can point to, to try to give us some context for how to do this appropriately in a way that is minimally disruptive to other rights that we care about. This is a whole new universe of poorly constructed laws going after a a terror that has been crudely defined, if defined at all. Simply saying critical race theory over and over again does not give us a clear picture of what politically unpopular speech they plan to use the courts to go after. This isn't success. This isn't victory. You don't win durable victories on cultural issues by just passing a piece of legislation. It doesn't Durable is important there because nobody is actually thinking of whether victory is durable or not, like particularly the Texas abortion stuff. Like, will that go um, fly up the flagpole to all the courts and actually remain? I mean, that's the sort of the durability is actually not the point. But, you know, the interesting thing is like how blinded these people are by the obsession with destroying CRT and or whatever whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And again, we need to stop and say because people love taking things out of context and because they're simple-minded people. Like, I mean, the people making these arguments are quite dumb because you see how they represent your own arguments and you realize they're quite either dishonest or fucking stupid, is that we don't like this stuff. We've been, we're OGs at this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, when people were, you know, in fucking high school, we were complaining about this shit, <laughs> both publicly and privately. But if you look at the Philadelphia example, which is a great example, and it shows you how little interest they have in actually these students and, and, and to Camille's point, there is a phrase in that press release from the state of Florida that 90, 87% of kids graduate illiterate. Now stop, two things here. Number one is how are people graduating, graduating from Mm -hmm. college, high school if they're illiterate? That's the bigger problem, number one. Number two, if these people are allowed to get through school, these kids are allowed to get through school, you know, being illiterate or functionally illiterate and graduating, how much do you think their parents care about this? I mean, are their parents interceding in some point and saying, my kids are getting a bad education? Or is there a bigger problem in the school district that may be protesting about Angela Davis? These kids are going to become communists. Well, I don't, I mean, like most communists, they'll be fucking stupid and illiterate because, you know, that's, that's common cause with the rest of them. But I don't think the big concern is that people walking away from the school are just, you know, incipient radicals that are going to go storm the ramparts. They are going to probably go to jail 
because that's what happens when you have, you know, graduate from high school and you're illiterate and everyone in your class is too. I imagine like Philadelphia this year is outpacing New York in murders. It's mm-hmm. a crime problem. There's a number of problems in Philadelphia that supersede this. And it doesn't mean you can't actually address a problem that is lower down in that list. But why is why are we not a- asking what is going on with parents who are allowing kids to leave the school without basic, basic literacy and actually people in the school that are graduating people without basic literacy, because according to the state of Florida, that's what's happening. And then in the same breath saying the CRT is the problem. I don't think that's the problem. It's, here. it's yeah. actually kind of crazy. Ask, ask yourself um, whether uh, or who are the people who looked at the results of the Virginia election, for example, and said, aha, you know, CRT as opposed to aha, they closed the schools in Fairfax for like 20 months. Um, and or at least some combination of that. I mean, it, it was not just right. That on its own. So but but to the, the people who wanted it to be more about CRT than the closing of the schools, what's the motivation structure there? And is that ultimately going to be good for the cause of reforming education? There was a piece in NPR today that I think NPR. <laughs> I can't listen to it anymore. It's a printed piece, thank God. Um, oh my God, like two um, printed piece CRT um, that will do almost certainly uh, more good, I think, than whatever Ron DeSantis did today with the with printing a flyer at a press conference, um, which was they did a deep dive study on 600 school districts um, in the country and found that this is a second consecutive year that um, most of them have lost students. They didn't rebound mm-hmm. after the pandemic mm-hmm. yeah. year. Yeah. They lost after the pandemic year. And this is particularly concentrated in big city school districts. And of course, NPR presented this as a the terrible problem. In some ways, I think it is objectively a terrible problem, or at least it's a problem that it's going to uh, bedevil or face cities and, and, and government structures. But ultimately, like that is a response how much of that is, is going to be CRT and how much of that is going to be um, parents who, in the process of the pandemic, got face to face with all kinds of things. But CRT-ish things were part of it. And I've wrote about that since before the pandemic. Um, but that kind of radical restructuring that's that's happening right now is so much more interesting mm-hmm. than what someone does at the Angela Davis School of not learning how to read in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the George Jackson Academy of killing judges. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, the, you know, they don't have a high graduation rate, but they certainly kill a lot of judges. Um, you can look that up. By the way. Uh, what? I didn't come on. <laughs> the school? I'm just reciting it. Well, yeah. I mean, Florida, Florida is a place. I mean, they've, they've got, they've got some, some sort of school choice there. That's a good thing. But Florida is also a place, yeah. Florida is also a place that's been struggling with a very well publicized teacher shortage mm-hmm. to the tune of thousands of teachers. That might be a focus of say the governor. He might be interested in trying to make certain that there's a warm, competent body in the classroom. They can actually do some sort of work, but I don't know that there's been more action out of this governor. At least it's been publicized that he's willing to to stand on a stage and like kind of try to get people to get no, excited about as related to that it. or the other thing. Like, which is it? Actually, yes. And that's the thing. Like he's trying to get national political points by doing the stunt when the thing that he did that deserves national political points, if 
which are you know done on a local level, is he opened the schools. He, mm-hmm. in September 2020, unlike almost every other governor in the country, said our schools are going to be open. They don't have the option to be closed. Mm-hmm. This was a tremendous and very nationally controversial thing yeah, absolutely. in which he turned out to be right. Carol Markowitz is moving to Florida because of this moment. Not that that's a huge bellwether, but it's at least something. Um, he, he opened the schools at a time when the basic school uh, teachers union approach and democratic politics approach was, oh my God, these are going to mm-hmm. be super spreader events. And he said, no, they're not. Here's why. This is the science. And he was almost always right in the way that he depicted that. That's a great national story to tell, but it's not as sexy to the modern Republican Party, that's I'm exactly afraid, right. than yes, being able to say right. critical race theory, critical but, but race could, theory. But could it be? But could it be? It I mean, it seems be. to me, yes, it seems to me be. that it really, that it really could be. I think like, it could it, be. if you talk yeah. about political leadership, the person who in the midst of the Omicron panic stands up and says, listen, the key to economic recovery and keeping people on their feet is not overreacting to every new variant. It's not shuttering schools on the basis of complete speculation, deciding that we're going to lock the state down again. These have to be our principles. This is what we're working on. You can actually do this in a highbrow way without Jared Polis in Colorado deciding to engage in this ridiculous, hysterical culture war bullshit. I don't actually think it's a great recipe for getting elected. I don't think that this is a, a winning strategy. I think I think no, you're right. I, I think, I think you're right too. Yeah. There, there's there's a version of audience capture here. And uh-huh. DeSantis is, you know, too focused on the kind of Fox News audience, the talk radio audience, the Twitter audience, and. You know, if he looked at the actual specifics of 2020 and where Donald Trump won and lost, I think a lot of these people would would back away from this idea that to take that winning issue, which is a winning issue, and that's something that parents and even people who aren't parents kind of say, well, we actually look at the scorecard at the end, and you're right, there wasn't 65,000 children dead. So nice job, Ron that need to punch that up to something else because it essentially it it, it kind of operates on the on a contempt for the american voter mm-hmm. that they're not smart enough and more in, like interesting enough to actually you know understand that nuance you have to make it stupid and make it trumpian the thing is is that yeah. we have you know lots and lots and lots of decades and decades of uh, evidence of elections that didn't need that and also, you have to separate the Trump election in 2016 from the very specific moment that it happened. And once you separate it from the what was 2016 and why it happened in that way, you can just land on this idea that the American people, and particularly Trump voters um, or Republican voters or sort of centrists who are going to say, I'm, I can swing either way, are that way forever. They're kind of forever that ideology rather than saying that that was a particular ideological moment. And people don't like to think that because it it complicates the narrative. And it's much easier for Ron DeSantis to say, I'm going to throw thunderbolts at everything. And, you know, everyone loves this. And most people, because I mean, the question is, 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 I think, twofold. One is, what, 
This is the question people are asking, like CRT this, CRT this. Do the poll about how many fucking people know what it is. Even nobody, in nobody has sense, any idea. like, yeah. well, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, go fuck yourself with the Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell shit. It's a fucking evasion. You guys are pieces of shit and you're liars. What about the kind of broader idea of this and what it represents? Whether that's accurate to its inception, who cares? What does it represent now? You can debate about how that happened. Will you get people who understand what this means? Number one. Number two is that all of these people that came out of schools that did not have CRT in the 80s and 90s and are complete fucking lunatics that are inhabit every fucking company <laughs> and inhabit, you know, half of Twitter. Where did they get this shit from? Do you think that really you have to nip it in the bud when they're five years old and 10 years old? Okay, yeah, it's bad. I totally agree with you. I cannot agree with you more. I mean, look at the fucking piece that I wrote about the Black Panthers and got endless amounts of shit for just reciting chapter and verse what was wrong with them. So the Angela Davis curriculum is not my favorite thing in the world. But at the same time, it's like, what do you think the long term results of some dingbat fucking teacher one by the because it's usually one in a school right the one who's like fucking you know from you know greek american parents wearing kente cloth <laughs> coming in with like black lives matter poster and he's like i am so hip yeah i'm so with what's going on in america like that's like one teacher usually in a school and everyone makes fun of them and that's that steals their weed i have examples of this by the way i can tell you off air this <laughs> is like not if you if it was every school you know from from end to end these people teaching this sort of stuff even if that's the case, we have to presume that we know there are studies that show this, that these kids come out with utterly warped opinions. Every opinion that was fed to me when I was in fifth grade, eighth grade, 12th grade, I utterly rejected in yeah. my life. Mm -hmm. That was because that was what I did, because that's what kids do. And so my thing is like, you want to keep kids away from this fucking nonsense? Teach it to them. Because they'll be like, <laughs> this is dumb. You guys are old losers teaching me this shit that is stupid. And who is Angela Davis? And is she dead or is she alive? Is she free? Is she in jail? No one fucking cares and i'm not saying that you shouldn't actually pay attention to this stuff you should yes you should but stop being chicken little and saying the sky is falling and everyone's gonna be corrupt about this stuff forever fuck off yeah yeah uh, well i mean i, I think we've probably done enough for one night um, drink enough for one night no um we'll do this again next week i take it yeah yeah we should do yeah. a little um are you coming back for zippo uh, I'm going to try. I don't know because it's so close to the Christmas thing. And <laughs> Called Christmas. I, and I got, <laughs> I, got I got a lot going on at the moment. So we'll see. Yeah. I hope yeah. to be in person in New York. I, I hope to be back with you there um, before the year is out. But there's right. only like yeah. three weeks left in the damn year. So. Right. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, when you're done with Ron Karenga... <laughs> <laughs> maybe come out here for a little bit yeah. lighting the candles every day yeah what, is the, what are the can did you ever uh try to do that did you have a moment where you're like no no <laughs> when you were like you had a moment when you had like a like a huge he's a seven, high top and he's a seventh day adventist right. they just like wake up in the morning and stab the pope that's right <laughs> pope. a jerk yeah, Norman Donald is a real jerk. <laughs> the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> Not kidding. Not no, kidding at all. No, I heard from heard from Ben Carson. Yeah, makes Ron Karenga sound pretty normal. Gifted <laughs> <laughs> hands around the throat yeah. of the yeah, Pope. What was the time that I tried to remember the name of it? What did I call it? 
Oh, somebody yeah. I remember it. spastic hands. It was something, something like, <laughs> it was like feeling hands, molesting hands. Oh, the greatest God. thing about Ben Carson, we'll end on this. We have to end on this because it's the best uh, bit of all time. Oh, no. Is when you walk into his house, there's an enormous painting of Ben Carson. <laughs> Have you seen those photos? <laughs> no. It's amazing. It's like an oil painting of Ben Carson when you walk into the it's foyer of Ben Carson's uh, house. Yeah, he kind of just disappeared, didn't he? When he handed you his book, Camille, on stage. <laughs> With his healing hands. Did you kiss the book? Yeah. Or like, what was the, what was the kind of... <laughs> that, never, that never happened. I went to the Adventist Book Center, the Book and Bible mm-hmm. House, in Tacoma Park, Washington, D.C. Or yeah. Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. <laughs> and... Um, and that's where that's where I met him, and that's where I got some books signed because yeah. again, as a young young Adventist, what you get that? copies of yeah, Think we're... Big and Gifted Hands. That is a thing. What else that, they sell? that bookstore? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only books that they sell, actually. Those and the various works of Ellen they G. control Mike, the weather, which may be plagiarized, but yeah, well, either that or the yeah. Spirit of Prophecy, one of the two. <laughs> the secret relationship between blacks and Jews. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! NOI classic. That's a lot of classic. All right. All right. Next week on the fifth column, uh, everyone's favorite. Uh, actually, I'm going to tell you. That's fine. That? Bye. 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 We know <laughs> of new methods of attack.